All right, all right, all right. Welcome to the next episode of the podcast. You're joined, as always, by your boy, Heavy Days, here from the Upside Down Library, bringing you all that inside information. But guess what? We couldn't do it without our amazing sponsors. Huge shout out to CT now, number one seed bank in the game. All the best breeders, all the best genetics, and the latest drops. If you're not satisfied at the end of your harvest, hit them up. They'll sort you out. Best in the industry. CT now, thank you so much. But in order to be able to properly evaluate the crop, you've got to make sure you have a good harvest free of pests and contamination. And for that, you need to check out the good people at Coppet Biological Systems. These guys have all the latest and greatest predators and technology to ensure that your garden is happy, thriving, pathogen and pest free. If you got spider mites, check out the Spidex Vital with proof of predation technology built in. They turn orange in front of your eyes to show you that they're killing bugs. What more could you want? Well, you got aphids, check out the Aphiparem, another killer product. Both of these specifically designed for cannabis crops. Going to help you to have the most successful harvest to date. There's nothing better than knowing that garden is free of pathogens, guys. Get on it. You won't regret it. Likewise, huge shout out to our friends at ProMix. You've known them and loved them for years. They make the most killer mediums in the game already inoculated with microbes trichoderma and mycorrhizae but guess what now you can get their standalone promix connect a mycorrhizal product designed to improve the yields increase the resin increase the weight terpenes flavonoids all of it's going to the moon don't do your garden a disservice by not using a high quality mycorrhizal product truly the best in the game guaranteed score viability going to improve your crop no second thoughts about it promix connect thank you so much get on board guys it's going to make a huge difference finally shout out to our friends at charlie's cannabis you know them and you love them oklahoma based veteran owned producing some of the most fire top shelf commercially available cannabis you've ever seen they recently started making their own missiles you will not believe the quality of these products Fino hunted from scratch using new exciting genetics all in-house any products you get from them uses material they've grown none of this passing through a million hand stuff made from trim from god knows who's grow everything in-house high quality charlie's cannabis just remember guys charlie's your bud Finally, a huge shout out to the Patreon gang. You are the lifeblood of the show. You guys help to ensure the episodes continue to be made. If you want early access to content, you want to hear unheard interviews, get access to exclusive giveaways, prizes, Discord, so much more, go check out the Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. Welcome back for part two of our chat with Todd McCormick of AG Seed Co. Hope you're excited to get back into it. Let's do it. Speaking of that joint, you're obviously aware you're quite lucky to be smoking original haze. You know, not many people are are able to say they've had that. I guess the question is, how would you describe it? Like, how do you describe the effect? What's the flavors you get? And um, do you think it's the sort of thing that's for everyone or it's only for a certain type of smoker? Um, I think if more people had access to it, they would really enjoy it. Uh, It's spicy. It's like uh, an incense almost. It's uh, not really sweet, but it has sweet tones. But... um, 
the high is really energetic. I mean, the part I like about it is if I smoke haze in the morning, it really invigorates me to want to go do the dishes, you know, get to work, you know, jump on my tasks. Uh, I don't really know what it is because I've tested it. Like I, I, I've tested haze and tested OG Kush and I would have thought the OG Kush was more potent than the, than the haze, but the OG Kush that I grew that time, I think came back like uh, 21.66 and the haze that I tested was at like 24.9. And I was just like, hmm. and I, and they were grown same soil, same system, same, 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 everything um, all by me. So you know, you don't, I don't know. I don't know. Like it's not just the THC in a way that's, that's something in the synergy of the terpenes uh, and the terpenes play this really important role. Um, Skunkman Sam uses a really good analogy that when you get high, it's like getting into an airplane. When you get into that airplane, the cannabinoids are the engines that bring you up to your height. And then the terpenes are the rudders that that will shape the flow of it the softness of your landing the whole thing and without the terpenes the cannabinoids don't really feel as good and anybody listening to this can can actually uh try it themselves they they literally could take a good bud smoke half of it leave it on the coffee table for a couple of days let it dry up all the cannabinoids are still present but the terpenes will have been lost and when the terpenes are lost, it won't have the same high, it won't have the same taste, it won't have the same flavor, and it changes, even though all the cannabinoids are still there. So I think it really shows that there's this true importance uh, when it comes to the synergy between the terpenes and the modulation that they create with the cannabinoids. Uh, so I urge more people, especially the ones that buy my seeds, to start selecting uh, on organoleptic testing rather than analytical testing, because at the end of the day, the machine's not the one buying the weed, you know, it's the human. So if, if something doesn't really, you know, have that allure to it, you're going to pass on it. And I think that a lot of breeders are going to find out that the market's going to drive the product towards the quality that the market can get. So, you know, it's going to be about effect more than it's about bag appeal or anything else and, or about more than a name, more than anything. You know, when I started selling pot when I was 12, everybody would always ask me, what's it like? You know, is what's this one like? And it's, it's like, it's a little different to everybody, but the haze is really not narcotic, uh, more spacey, more of that, like you get high and you get high and you get high some more and you get forgetful and you get giddy and you're like looking for the ice cream. And I don't know, it's, it's the fun high. Uh, the Northern Lights, is more heavy, more like, whoa, you know, like more go sit in the hot tub and grab the remote control and relax or go to bed early, like that more narcotic like effect. And um, so the, the haze to me is, I don't know, I think more people are gonna love it. And I think more people are gonna breed with it. I've sold quite a few seeds in the last two and a half years of it. And um, I'm hoping more and more and more people start introducing it into their uh, crosses because it's been kind of long enough now, about two seasons since I offered it in 2019 that people have been able to now, you know, grow it and work with it. So I personally think we're going to start seeing more and more of it. Um, you know, my kind of, my joke when I started doing this was I want to haze the world. <laughs> you know, That would be cool to see for sure. And something that I noticed about the photos you'd posted on your Instagram was that, the buds were sort of a lot more plump and I guess just 
fatter than I was expecting. I think in a lot of people's minds, like myself, you imagine sort of like you're going to get one tiny piddly little joint per branch. I guess the question arises, do you think maybe it yields more than what people expect or it is very much like what? No, it blew my mind. Uh, that's a great, that's great. You know, I, I actually hesitated to post all the variations of photos I was getting from the variety because some of them look so unlike what people think haze is and they get set in their mind. There's an old quote that I used to write into all of the Emperor Wears No Clothes books that I used to give away and there's hundreds of them. And it was by Daniel Borenstein. And the quote is, the greatest obstacle to discovery is not ignorance. It is the illusion of knowledge. And I used to write that in all the books because I felt it summarized the message we were putting out about cannabis being enshrouded in lies that only the noble could see. And that was the whole mission of The Emperor Wears No Clothes. For those people listening, the book was named The Emperor Wears No Clothes from the, the fable The Emperor's New Clothes, where the emperor was sold cloth that only the noble could see. And Jack felt that cannabis was enshrouded in lies that only the noble could see. And he named the book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, because it was really, anyone who looked at this would see that it really wasn't what they partake it to be. So <clears throat> that said, um, I feel as if a lot of people have these uh, pre-existing notions about original haze. And because they haven't had experience with the variety uh, only hybrids of the variety for the most part. Uh, they really don't know what it's like. And I, I say to people that uh, original haze and skunk one are like polar opposites. Uh, skunk one is a relatively true breeding, super uniform, super consistent. Uh, original hayseeds are like inbred, F God knows what at this point, you know, I asked Sam, he's like, who knows, F11, who knows uh, how many generations of times he's bred them together. But he was doing so because he wanted to maintain the variety within the variety so that he could hunt through it phenotype wise and pick things to work with, um, which makes pure sense to me. And uh, when I grow them out, I found phenotypes that go from literally eight, nine weeks that are, I would say mid uh, like leaflet, but, but again, I grow in a greenhouse. So I grow fairly big plants. I mean, I, I posted some Northern Lights leaves that were so gigantic, biggest I've ever seen in all my years growing on uh, this last run with Northern Lights number two. It was also the one that morphed into looking like duck's foot, but the more I researched it, duck's foot has a narrower, more like, dare I say sativa, but I hate to, but a nor more narrow leaflet. Um, and this one was just plain fat is just ridiculous. So, um, <clears throat> but the haze itself has a lot of variation and you get everything from these like 16 week, narrow, narrow, narrow leaflet, very few florets on the, on the, on the stem to stuff that's pretty beefy. Uh, one of the females out of the entire greenhouse turned purple and it wasn't cause it was cold. My, my greenhouse is completely environmentally controlled and I was just like, damn. And I had Rob Clark here visiting during the harvest and he was down there taking photos and just enjoying the shit out of it because, you know, this, he was, he went to university of Santa Cruz in the seventies. He was around the, he used to trim haze when he was in college. Like he's closer to this than any of us really. And I don't doubt he had his hands in making the seeds that I was given because he worked at the time at, 
you know, and he was in charge of the greenhouses. So he knew exactly what I was growing because I don't doubt he made the seeds with, with Skunkman Sam. So uh, he was just having a blast. And when he saw the purple one, he was the one that was like, oh, this is, you know, people used to love this one because it had like a silvery kind of purplish to it. You, you see color expressions in them um, start to come out. Um, I, I love it. And uh, I had Mishka here, you know, who used to be Neville's girlfriend a little bit. And she was sitting at my desk and we were talking about the origin of Hayes. And I, I told her straight up, I said, it's not with Neville. It's with Sam. It's with Santa Cruz. I says, come downstairs and touch these plants. They were not in flower at the time. And you tell me what they are. And me and Mishka went downstairs and she touched the plants and she immediately smelled it and went, oh yeah, yeah, that's A's. And I was like, right, I got these from the same person Neville did. You know, is there any surprise? Because I guess since he named a variety that has haze in it after Mishka in the last few years. So that's what she was wondering about this. And she was the one that showed me, uh, she gave me a pre-copy of a book before uh, it was released and it has the interview with Neville. And it's interesting because in the interview, Neville isn't listening to himself because in it, he says that you couldn't improve haze by breeding it together. That's what Sam told him. So the only way Sam would know that you can't improve it by breeding it together is if he did it. So when Neville was talking about these seeds from 1969, the original seeds that I have are from that 1969 cross that Sam kept isolated from all his other work and reproduced as that 69 cross. The seed or the plants, I believe that, that Neville was given to male plants in 1987, um, those came from these original haze seeds from one of those generations. You get what I'm saying? So the, the seeds I got from Sam were also from that IBL preservation and are basically brothers and sisters, cousins sort of of those original seeds that go all the way back. Um, and you know, they, they kind of are what they are, if that makes sense, you know, and, and what I find unique about the original haze is out of everything in my collection, they are the only seeds that I have that have no Afghan influence in them. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point to make. And you sort of touch on the broader topic of the genetics within the strains we discuss. And there's a lot of, for a long time, I used to hear people talk about haze as though it wasn't until the tie was crossed into it at the end that it truly became haze. And then in more recent discussions with people in the know, I realized that that obviously wasn't quite correct because a lot of people talk about haze as like the real Colombian rich sort of psychedelic high that those cultivars bring to it all. I guess what I'm wondering is, at what point did you think it was haze? Do you think the commonly discussed Indian genetics are actually in there at all? And finally, what are your thoughts on the different phenos? You just referenced, you know, the blue, the silver, the purple. Were they were they real things or was it just potluck? Uh, according to Skunkman Sam, the original haze was a three-way Colombian combination uh, that was based around three different... There was Ponta Rocha, which meant red, basically. Uh, and then there was a silver and I think a blue. And, uh, and I suck for this, I'm stoned right now, but I've asked him a zillion times, same damn question, tells me the same damn answer every time. But, uh, but it's three-way Colombian. And um, 
And every single year, what kind of ruined Hayes? And by the mid-70s, they had outcrossed that 1969 first hybrid uh, so many times that it really wasn't hazy anymore. Uh, it had a Mexican cross with it. It, it, it had Thai cross with it. it. Every single year was a different outcross because they were trying to improve it. Um, and, you know, by 76, 77, according to Skunkman Sam, they gave up growing it because he introduced uh, Skunk One, which was two thirds tropical, one third Afghan, uh, Colombian gold and Acapulco gold, but it was coming down late August, early September, and it changed the game. I mean, and you know, if you're a commercial cropper, uh, you got to wait until November, December to get down what you could be pulling down at the beginning of September, same location. There's no, there's no question. So they didn't want to expose themselves to get busted. And they started switching over to this amazing fucking weed that was Skunk Van Sam's. And um, they stopped growing haze. And by the late 70s, haze was, was, was nothing but a legend on a lot of levels. And the genetics were all but lost. Even by the people who originally held them because they didn't preserve them like Sam did. Yeah, wow, that's so interesting. I, I had another question sort of similar, but I think you sort of answered already where I was going to ask you about the photos we see on your Instagram where it's like Hayes cross to tie. And I guess I was sort of wondering, like, is that an extra tie cross or sounds like it's the first one? I don't have a tie cross. I don't. I Well, wait a minute. I have skunks, uh, skunk Hayes tie. Uh, he calls it thunk. Ty Hay Skunk calls Thunk, uh, but I'm not growing that right now. I have seeds of it. I have grown that in, I think I grew it like 2014 or 2015. I have a lot of seeds of it. He, 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 he was very generous back in 2012 and he, he sent me home with enough to play with for a while. And for the first few years, I would just grow some of the seeds and just do fennel hunts and then save a plant and throw the rest away. Um, it wasn't really until I started AGC Co that I, uh, considered IBL in them and trying to bring them back to the community. I didn't feel like it was my variety to do that with, especially after the story he told me about uh, how he viewed his relationship with Neville and why Neville didn't have all the seeds of haze and Neville made up a story. It, like, it kind of made sense. And uh, so I didn't want to be that guy and, uh, and I wasn't. And uh, so, but I think that trying to get these out to the world is a good thing. I think that, you know, trying to, you know, save these and spread these around is a good thing. Um, Sam himself uh, did too. I mean, for, I would say late, late 80s, early 90s, he was still selling seeds by the kilo, probably to a lot of the Dutch breeders. And by that time, uh, the green team, which was, which was Wernard and Positronics, which became Positronics, he was, Wernard was clearly, you know, knocking off, remaking, F2-ing, F3-ing, F4-ing, everything that he had ever got from Sam, which was quite a bit, you know what I mean? He, he got the whole collection. It's clear to me that Renard and the green team, uh, Renard had Hayes before Neville did. Renard had Hayes probably right from 85 onward, but had very little interest in it. You know what I'm saying? Because it was, again, did, you know, his favorite variety was something called Citral, which I would, it was like a little bit, uh, it took a little longer than maybe B52, which at the time was like a chronic, which was like a, a big bud, like a, like a super skunk time, super cropper type thing. Uh, wasn't my favorite, but, you know, Bernard was looking for uh, stuff that fit what he was trying to do, which was, you know, promote indoor cultivation and, you know, a lot of little lollipop plants and, you know, and I love it. I mean, the first time I walked into Positronics as a, 
and and saw all those little plants in the perfect little you know square meters and you know i i immediately thought to myself oh that's how you're supposed to do it and my life was never the same i i never grew i never grew the same after that once i realized how efficient it was to grow smaller plants that had less veg time uh it was no going back you know what i mean it was just so that's also why i got busted with so many plants. I mean, there's a picture of me standing in front of a wall of clones on the back of my book. And I got busted, I think with like 4,100 plants or whatever at the time. Uh, it was just because I, you know, sea green, it, it's the most efficient way to grow. And uh, that's why I think that uh, these tropical equatorials have come back too, because one of the tips Neville gave me and my friend Tom was don't give it any pre-grow. If you have plants that take over 10, 11 weeks to finish flowering, move them straight from rooting into flowering and allow them to grow and flower simultaneously. Because even though uh, they're in flower, they will, um, they will grow continually as they're flowering and you'll still get plants that are almost a meter tall after 11 weeks, uh, if not taller, even though they started off, you know, you know, barely a few centimeters tall in comparison to where they ended up. So it was good advice. And I still pass that along to people to this day, because if you take a bunch of equatorial tropicals and put them in when they're, you know, just a day or two after rooting and pop them next to each other, you can get fantastic harvests, you know, 20 plus grams per plant, you know, in a tight, close uh, grouping that way exceeds what you would get from, you know, six weeks of grow and letting it go up and then having a bunch of wasted space at the bottom. It's, way more efficient yeah some solid advice there for sure i guess just to quickly wrap up the haze part i was wondering there's obviously no notable haze cuts that go around but there are a few uh nl5 hazes that have got a bit of a reputation i guess i was wondering if you had tried any of the notable ones like the a5 the c5 or even like the cuban black haze by any chance uh, Cuban haze, I have. Uh, I think it's NL5. Uh, you know, when you look at the dating of it, I believe that late 80s, early 90s, NL5 was a hugely popular variety and that a lot of people were growing that. And um, some of the others I, I tend to disappoint a bit. Uh, I like Cali Mist a lot. I think that, uh, but you know, it was funny. I was having a conversation with Simon once and he didn't think that the long flowering female that he used in the original combination was haze. And I was just like, what did you think it was? And he said, Colombian. And I went, mm, well, <laughs> I think it is today's, you know, like, but, you know, I, it, it just, it's interesting how the names change and people don't really realize what they have sometimes. And uh, even though they're using it successfully and, you know, I think haze has been amazing. I mean, my two favorite haze plants when I lived in Amsterdam was NL5 haze. Uh, Neville's haze wasn't out yet. Um, or he just started to, to release it actually uh, at the Tollstrat greenhouse, uh, if I remember correctly, and, and the Cali Mist. Now, I liked Neville's Haze though over NL5 by Haze. NL5 by Haze was great, but it was more normal lights. When he crossed it, but when he crossed the NL5 by Haze back to that Haze A, uh, I think it, it made it spicier, made it more hazy, and I liked it better. It yielded less, and it took, I think, a little longer, but it was worth the wait and worth the loss of yield. Do you think we'll ever see Neville's Haze make a comeback? It's something which is really always popular among the heads. I have a lot of stuff close. Um, I, 
You know, it's funny because like I have the genetics, it, it's like bacon brownies. Uh, and then it comes to selecting the proper salt and the proper sugar and the proper molasses, the proper wheat, you know, to make your, your cookie just the way you remember it. And I think that this is similar. And I mean, we can't go back and smell those phenotypes that he had. But for those of us that have been around the genetics, I mean, we can test the prodigy and see if it reminds us. And, you know, for me, I mean, I already have a lot of those hazy combinations. Most of the stuff I'm smoking uh, would remind you or anybody who wasn't familiar with like, oh, that this is that haze because it's overwhelms the uh, gassiness of the NL with the spicy uh, overtones of the haze. You know what I mean? So like if you came over, I, I think you would be in haze heaven over here because I've, I've touched it to damn near everything. Um, but now that I'm growing the NL, I have a lot of stuff that has not been touched to the, to the NL, but you know, it's been hard to resist. I was doing a room for my head and I, I was in the middle of flowering the, um, meaning I was doing a room for my head. I was doing a room seedless because I only use one male at a time at my facility because I'm, I'm not trying to fuck around. And, uh, and I had the NL2 going in the greenhouse and, I took a branch of it and I brought it into the room that I was going to do seedless and shook it over the plants is because even though I had original haze going and I had these skunk haze crosses I had going and I had these super glue, uh, I crossed it with on haze and then did a selection cross that selection to original haze to try to pump up the haze again, kind of going for that Neville haze vibe, if you will. Um, I liked it, but then I just hit it with the NL2 because now I can't wait. You know, I was like, frigate, instead of getting the sensimilia, I'll just get to play with the seeds because the NL2 is so impressive. And I want to see what the effects are with this male against a lot of these other genetics that I'm so familiar with to see how it, you know, how it dominates the prodigy that comes off of it and how it affects it. Like what kind of sense I get, what kind of body I get from the buds, what kind of like width I get from the leaves and things like that. And I just did a combination of original haze as the female crossed with NL2 as the male in this. And it's hanging up right now. And it's funny because I keep going down there and I keep, I just can't, I, I go downstairs sometimes just to go to the haze plant to just, smell them because they they you get an upper from smelling them it's weird like i get happy just smelling the fucking thing so um but it's that unique everything else i mean i don't know the skunks that are down there smell sweet the super gala smell gassy but that haze just i don't know man calls my name that's special that's cool to hear i think it's going to be a neat combination because the genetics are dissimilar and the We'll see, we'll, we'll see how it comes out, but it's kind of close to what Neville was doing back then with the NL, depending on which, but I think he used the NL2 a lot, I think NL did, because it was the one that was spectacular. And, um, and I just did the opposite of what he did. Instead of uh, NL5 female crossed with the Hayes male, I went with the original Hayes female and crossed it with the NL2 male. Uh, so we're going to start seeing how some of these things pop up and you know, I already like it. One of the super glue by on Hayes was on the cover of Grow Magazine. A lot of the people that's grown it love it because it has that Afghan, but it has that spice. Interesting. So, I mean, can you give us a little bit of a rundown on the different smells and effects from the different NL lines you have? Um, uh, the purest indica is heavy. The NL2 is heavy. The NL5 is a little more light, uh, meaning like when I say light, like uh, from more tropical plants, I get more of a, like a, 
I don't know, like a, like a light high. I don't know how to put it. Like it's more in your head and you're just kind of like happy high. Uh, a lot of this stuff, like the NL is more physically relaxing. I, I, my neck pain recedes more, but I can't say that it, that the haze doesn't make my neck pain go away. It's just that I get so high. I forget about it, but the NL feels like it actually likes, like, I don't forget about it, but I feel kind of chill. <laughs> you know? So um, I, I think there's the, you know, the NyQuil compared to caffeine effect. I, I would consider haze is more like in my body acts as a caffeine uh, and the NLs, the purest indica is just very resiny. And it's when I broke up the buds, it, my fingers smell like import hash. Like if you've ever been to Amsterdam and you smoke like King Hassan hash and shit like that, like it, it just like, it just had, it smells like fucking hash, man. It like smells like old school hash and I love it. And then the flowers smell kind of skunky stinky when they were growing, which reminds me of the eighties too, because you know, that's, you know, that's what it kind of smelled like. And when the, when it would cure, it would, it would depend on when you, you got it. So like, depending on how fresh the flowers were, were going to depend on how much of the terpenes they were emitting at any given time. So if you were getting pot from your friend who was growing in their closet, they probably weren't waiting that long uh, for the dry and the cure because we were all so excited and you were actually getting cannabis it was probably two or three weeks from being cut down a lot of the times. And when you smell it, smell it was so overwhelming and so strong. Um, but, but now with the legal market, we get pot that's like fucking months old, you know what I mean? It's like cured and dried and wasn't even handled well. And then, you know, like it's unbelievable and it's different. So I, I just think, uh, I don't know not the best at describing the flavors and tastes and stuff, but more the highs and the excitement I get from it. But I, I like the Northern Lights and I like feeling relaxed, but I like the hazes and I like feeling creative too. Yeah, look, they sound fantastic and I'm, I'm with you. I think I'm more of a haze guy than a kush guy, so to speak. But as a follow-up question to that, can we ever expect to maybe see any feminized work from you or specifically S1s of any of these lines, the NLs or the purest indicas? Yeah, actually, totally. Uh, so <clears throat> the, plants, some, the plants in my future uh, are to start collecting a lot of these clone-only cultivars that are floating around um, you know, and s one them so other people can experience green crack and train wreck and other things. Um, Mel Frank already does that. He not only makes S1s, he's been breeding with female pollen uh, for a long time. And he makes crosses by, so uh, he'll take his females that he likes and then he'll reverse them. He will collect the pollen, he will store the pollen, and then he will administer that pollen on another plant that he likes and he will do fem feminized breeding. So, you know, but he's, I mean, this is Mel Frank. I mean, I expect him to be a little ahead of the curve when it comes to what he does. First time he, he showed me something, it was S1, F1, and S1, F2. And I went, no, this isn't how it could be. And he goes, well, I don't know what else you'd call it. I collected the pollen from one plant and I bred it to the other. And I was just like, oh, really? And I was like, and that's why the name's like this? He's like, well, I put the, the plant that I collect, the female plant that I collected the pollen from as the second name because it would be the male, right? I was like, right. And he was like, and it was the second time I do it. So what do you think I should call it other than an F2? I was like, I get it. 
I get it. So, you know, you pop those seeds, you bread those seeds together. So you get like it, it, dealing with him is so much fun. I'm the first person in his whole life that he's allowed to sell the seeds. And it's kind of an honor to say the very least. And, um, and I learn something from him every time we talk, which is fortunately for, you know, quite often, but um, he's been releasing S I've had S one seeds of his since I've been selling seeds. Cause he's had them for a long time and we have the bread uh, feminized bread. So, we, he's still doing that. He's making more feminized GDP seeds. I couldn't keep them in stock last time he gave them to me. I'm expecting more soon. Um, but then what I'm also going to do is uh, the guy that's famous for GDP actually gave the seeds to him back some years back. And I know the guy myself, his name's Ken, and I'm going to try to get the cutting that's been floating around of GDP and then S1 that. Um, there's a lot of plants that are on our hit list to kind of collect an S1 because I think they're great breeding material and people have, a des you know, deserve a right to work with them. And I don't want to cross them with something because I want them to be as close to what they are. And the only way I can like put them in a seed form is to S1 them. Um, the plants that the seed varieties that I got from Skunkman Sam that I can't reproduce, like Thunk, Taihei Skunk, um, I'm just gonna go through my seeds, do selections, pick the best examples, and then S1 those so that people can experience those as well. I asked him if I could do that and he was totally cool with it. Um, Cause I don't know another way of releasing proper representations of them except to S1, you know, you know what I mean? So. Um, I think that's going to be fun. I mean, at this rate with the seed collection I have and the plans I have, I can only hope to have like three more lifetimes at least maybe if I'm lucky. Watching the grass grow, that's all I want to do. Stand around working, watching the grass It's a good life. It's a good life. So it sounds like you've got a lot of exciting breeding projects sort of in the mix. My question is, which one are you most excited for and are going to start next? It's not hasn't started yet, but it's going to be the next one to get the wheels churning. Um, well, I, a couple, um, well, breeding projects are going to supersede me. Uh, I, I don't feel like I'm breeding when I'm, when I'm F2ing, uh, you know, through permission, uh, some of the original haze or the skunk or, or, or the um, Northern Lights. I, I don't really feel that's breeding. Um, I feel it's preserving and I'm, and I'm grateful I'm part of the preservation of these genetics and I'm passing them on to other people. I'm gonna do that again uh, with NL5 because I ran out of NL5 seeds and everybody's freaking out over them. Um, then I'm gonna do it with the purest indica because Greg really wants to see more people get purest indica and, and experience the medicine and it's the best afghan i've ever grown in my life and i think people deserve it it's so beautiful it's so nice it's just like leathery leaves and just crusty crusty buds of flower of resin and i just i'm in love i'm in love with how it smells i'm in love with how it smells after it dries um after that um my goal was actually to spend more time going through uh, more hay seeds and selecting more phenotypes of hays and and spending more time with these because uh, all the seeds that Greg sent me I've cloned and uh, so I have all those genetics and I want to just spend more time going through all of the different sister phenotypes and and really getting to know them for for their differences and then I really want to spend more time breeding together with original hays because you know, I mean, I think the real key to F1s is dissimilar genetics if you really want to get some fantastic hybridization. And so that's kind of, you know, I'm trying to do what everybody else isn't doing, which is breeding together closely related plants. <laughs>
So, uh, and I have that unique opportunity to do that. And I'm not trying to be a jerk about it. I'm trying to give the opportunity to other people so that they can also um, experience these genetics. And I, I think there's a lot of artists in the world. You know, I, I wrote in a Neville's article, I saw him as an artist. You know, even though he didn't invent red, blue, gold, he, he, what he created with it was beautiful. And we can appreciate his art. You know, but it doesn't mean other people can't come along with the primary colors and recreate similar combinations that maybe are even more spectacular. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So I'm just going to change topic for a moment. I was curious to know, how was it that you came about to be the editor of The Emperor Wears No Clothes? Did you have a close relationship with Jack before that or was that the start of the relationship? It was 1993, and I'd read his book. Uh, and I was living in San Diego in a place called Pacific Beach. And the book really blew me away. It reinforced a lot of the decisions I'd made for a while. I'd, I'd have, you know, hippie guilt about you being a pothead and, you know, kept it secret. Like I was, you know, less than someone and uh, less than society, you know, and uh, frowned upon. And when I read his book, it was like liberation. And I called the number on the back. It was January of 1994. And this girl named Summer answered the phone and started explaining to me that they were doing an initiative to legalize marijuana in Kemp and I should come up and help. And I was stunned. And uh, I wanted to maybe go say hi to him, buy him lunch. I don't know. Like I had, I had, I had good money at the time, so I could afford to go buy him lunch in LA or something. And I hope to just say thank you. And when I got there, I saw what they were doing and I was sitting there one day and uh, it was lit- I was literally the first day I got there and then Jack walked into the office and he goes, uh, who the fuck are you? <laughs> I said, uh, who the fuck are you? And he was like, oh, I'm Jack Harris. What are you even wondering? And, uh, and uh, he liked it. He said, what are you from the East Coast? I said, yeah. And he said, you want to smoke the best goddamn pot you've ever smoked in your life? And I had a I had a cannabis collection at the time and I had a duffel bag full of different like eights and quarters, maybe 20 to 30 of them. And I said, sure. Oh, the headphones died. Uh, one minute. Let me get my headphones. I have another set of headphones. One sec. I followed him and a group of hippies into the back room and he sat down and he showed me this really great pot, probably a Hindu Kush grown in Northern California by a gentleman named Richard davis and um who owned the traveling hemp museum and it was great and then i started pulling out all these different types of weed that like some of them would stick to the baggie and shit and jack is a real pothead he wanted to smoke all that shit he wasn't gonna let me out of his sight till he smoked all my weed and uh we sat there getting high and um and then he brought me over to his place uh like because because he was like you're not driving back to san diego i said no he said, don't go get a hotel. You can crash at my house. So I have a couch. And I said, okay. So we went to his place and uh, he whipped out the Bible, bro, and starts teaching me about the etymology of letters and words and shit. Because this is what he was tripping on at the time. And we sat up all night long, literally reading the Bible and, and, and him teaching me all the different interpretations of what he thought it really meant and uh, really deep shit. And uh that morning we went and got food. It was the last time in my life I ate chicken. And, um, and we, we were inseparable after that. That day we became best friends and uh, we started just, I started working on the initiative. I became the San Diego coordinator and uh, I worked with him in 94. 
uh, into 95. Um, he's the one that introduced me to Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary and Chris Conrad, Mickey Norris. And they're the ones that, you know, helped uh, put together Ben Dronker's um, museum in Amsterdam. Um, he's the one that introduced me to Ben and the whole Holland scene and high times and, you know, traveling around with Jack was like, you know, having backstage pass to everything we did. And, and I made a lot of friends and um, I was really inspired by everybody I met. And that's why I started the San Diego Compassion Club in 1995, because, you know, while we were meeting all these people, it was just really heavy duty to meet people that were legitimately really sick and not be able to give them uh, some weed. I would always give them whatever I had. I just couldn't say no. I mean, when I was a little kid, my mother didn't charge me for the medicine I needed. You know, she just gave me the pot. And uh, I just can't imagine denying somebody something that can alleviate their, their, their ills if you have it. Just, I don't know, maybe it comes from being a little kid, being sick all the time, but I have a lot of empathy for people. So uh, when I started the San Diego Compassion Club, we did not sell marijuana. We redistributed, donated cannabis uh, to people that were sick, you know, and um, we made edibles and gave them away and, you know, everything we could do to, to you know, I don't know. It's just when, when you're on the front lines of the activism, you end up meeting people that have cancer and that have AIDS and that have these different conditions. And. I don't know you feel inclined to help and uh, so i started the san diego compassion club in april march april of uh, 1995 and i got busted shortly thereafter and um you know so it, it's been a struggle the whole way through i ended up getting busted in ohio with 30 pounds of cannabis heading to rhode island because i was going to start another one i wanted to do one in my hometown um and instead, I got busted in Ohio along the way. But because I had, uh, and this is a twist, uh, when in 1994, when I was in Holland, I got a doctor's uh, prescription for medical cannabis from a Rotterdam physician named Dr. Trussell. And he uh, saw my spinal fusion and, and felt like my medical use cannabis was quite legit. So he wrote me an actual prescription for 10 grams a day. And I didn't believe that it was legitimate until I went home and did some studying uh, up at the University of California. They have a law library that's really good. And I was able to look up things like this, the, uh, the single treaty, uh, Geneva Convention, uh, the psychotropic substances. I was able to look up customs laws. Um, believe it or not, they did not prohibit the importation of medical cannabis. Um, because if you look up the way that internationally cannabis was handled, it fell under uh, the opium uh, rules in the, um, the the first treaty and uh, because of that if you had opium prescribed uh legally by a country you could bring it to another country under the prescription rules so uh it was really unique and cannabis fell onto this but nobody was doing it um so i was one of the first people that actually challenged it uh the laws that is it and went back to holland and brought back medical cannabis i um L.D. Musica is a woman that gets medical marijuana from the federal government. She's got glaucoma. She's an old activist. She's in her 80s now. She does no longer get cannabis from the government because they're giving her swag. But um, she was one of my first friends as an, as an activist and a real big inspiration. And um, 
Elvie would would get in trouble with cops, but she'd have her prescription and they would not know what to do with this crazy old lady. You know, she was crazy in a good way, but she was very boisterous and loud and wouldn't give up and get in their face. And they just wanted to get away from her. And uh, I saw the prescription as a real important thing. So what happened is, is I came back from the Netherlands with no prescription. Well, with the prescription, but with no pot. Um, and then I was driving up from San Diego to LA and there's a checkpoint. Uh, it's supposed to be for immigration, they say, but it's really not. But so they, 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 they will, it's at San Onofre. It's right before this military base called Camp Pendleton. Um, and it's like this random checkpoint that goes up between San Diego and LA. So they stopped me and I had pot on me and I had my prescription and I demanded to keep my pot or arrest me. And they didn't know what to do with me. So they, the cop has this human moment and says, listen, man, I just want you to go away. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. He's like, can we come to like a truce on this? Like you can have some of the pot. Like you got to give me some pot so I can go show my boss that I confiscated your weed. And I was like, okay. And I was like, leave me what's in the backpack and take what's in the bigger bag. It's bigger anyway. And he, cause I had, I hate to say it. I had kind bud and then I had Mexican import weed. I used to give away the Mexican import weed and share the kind bud with Jack. So he did it. And uh, I went up to Jackson. I was just like, dude, he didn't know what to do with this fucking piece of paper. And me and LV were, LV was there at the time. And we were all like, this could be huge. So then uh, LV and I and Richard Davis, the guy that threw that pot, went up to the Sacramento Law Library and did all the studying we could. We came to the conclusion that th there's a lot of legitimacy to an international prescription. Uh, so then... LV went back home to Florida and she used to routinely debate the DEA, crazy as it sounds. But um, she invited me and Florida Normal, which stood for the National Organization to Reform Marijuana Laws, uh, invited me out to go debate the DEA with LV. I have this on video. And I went out there and I debated the Southeast Quadrant leader. And I basically asked him, will you arrest me if I go to the Netherlands and pick up my prescription to fly back? And he said, no. And I said, really? Okay. And I said, there was like 300 people there. I said, you're all my witness. I will fly to the Netherlands tomorrow. I will pick up my prescription. I'll fly back and we see if I get arrested. And he looked at me like, if looks could kill, kid, I would zap you right now. And uh, I went back to Elvie's place. I called, uh, at the time, Martin Airlines, which was owned by KLM, is Dutch owned. And uh, they allowed smoking on planes. And when I called, they said, would you like smoking or non-smoking? I said, you can smoke on an airplane. They said, yeah, international flights over nine and a half hours. And I said, well, I have a prescription from my Dutch physician for medical cannabis, and I'm supposed to smoke it about every two hours. Would that be acceptable? And she said, are you willing to provide a copy of your prescription to the stewardess? I said, oh, yeah. And she said, then I don't think it's a problem at all. So, but you have to sit in a smoking section. So I literally smoked weed from Florida to the Netherlands in the smoking section legally after giving him my prescription. It was fucking great. And uh, I felt like freedom was happening and I flew back and they didn't arrest me. I declared it. Um, they freaked out a little bit. They wanted me to sign this forum that said <clears throat> that I, uh, that I failed to declare a controlled substance. And I said, no, 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 no. I want the forum that says I declared the controlled substance and you're taking away my prescribed medicine. I'll sign that for him, but I don't think you have it. And they freaked out and they let me walk out. They didn't even search my other bag. They were just like, go away. 
And the guy actually said, good luck to you in secondary. It was amazing. He walked me out the double doors and I realized, wow, there's a lot of power to this. So that's when I came back home and I went right back up to Dennis and, and really Dr. Todd McAria, who was one of the OG doctors that wrote the, the hemp drug commission report and was really one of him and Lester Grinspoon first real first physicians on this in America. And, um, he saw it too. So he prescribed me, he gave me a recommendation for cannabis as well. And then I got busted. And uh, it's interesting because as soon as Dr. Todd McAria gave me a prescription, he started giving a lot of people prescriptions, like, but they weren't, they were recommendations or they were letters of condition. Because at the time, all that Dennis required wasn't a prescription, wasn't a recommendation until 1996. It was just a, a letter of your condition. That was it, you know? Um, but that's kind of like, I don't know. It's a little much, you know, you don't want to go to someone, Hey, I got AIDS. Hey, I got cancer. It's none of their business, you know? So it's a little invasive. Um, but Dr. McAria was one of my good friends and he started writing me prescriptions. And for a little while in California, at the very beginning of 1995, I was the only person that I knew that had a doctor's note in California that was using it to try to validate their, their, their controlled carry of cannabis. LV did have a prescription, but she was getting her shit from the federal government. I was not. I was I was just trying to assert that my doctor would back it up. And then what happened is I got busted in Ohio and the public defender was more like a public pretender. And I got fussed, flustered and the, the judge saw that and he asked me if I had something to say. So I stood up while I was still chained and explained that I was a medical cannabis patient and that I had an international prescription and that they should look at this on the merits of the law and not on their opinions, you know, and, and base it all on fact. And he liked it. And he accepted the, the single treaty Geneva Convention. He accepted the, the, the um, customs laws. He accepted uh, the, the psycho 79 psychotropic substances because it also, you come to the realization that they were not trying to prohibit the medical usefulness of cannabis or opium. They were trying to pr prohibit the potential narcotic nuisance of it. So they really never intended to uh, in, inhibit medical use per se, and they couldn't have, if they wanted to, because everybody would have meant, what the fuck is that? You know, but, but realistically, that's how it stood. So the judge in Ohio said, if I could get one American doctor to, to validate my Dutch physician's prescription, he'd let me use cannabis while I was incarcerated. And I went home and called my good friend, who's a lawyer in Ohio, and he called Dr. Todd McAria, Dr. John Mogan, who wrote uh, Marijuana Myths, Marijuana Facts, and he called Dr. Lester Grinspoon, who wrote marijuana reconsidered and marijuana of the forbidden medicine. And all three of them wrote me notes that night and said that they had personal you know, knowledge of me and they've met me and that they were friends with me and that they all backed it up. Dr. John Morgan, who was a professor at the City University of New York, actually called the FDA and said, question, if a person, an American goes to Europe and picks up a Schedule One substance under prescription, can they bring it back? They said, yeah, three months supply. He said, Interesting. What if it's cannabis? They said, well, I don't see why not, but what country is prescribing cannabis? He said, the Netherlands. And John told me later, he said, it was funny because the guy laughed and he said, oh, I guess he found the hole in the dike. And they laughed on it. And he wrote that in the letter, not the part about the, the hole in the dike, but that he contacted the FDA and they assured him that the importation of a Schedule One substance under prescription from a foreign country for a 30 days prize, most absolutely legal. And the judge in Ohio didn't know what to do. So it released me. And it was amazing because the AP of uh, Associated Press sat in on this 
And when the judge didn't give me the pot, she released the story. And the front page of the newspaper said inmates smoke pot at CCNO. And then the USA Today picked it up and made this great editorial about why medical cannabis should be legal. They started off with Todd McCormick left his home to help seriously ill people. The only problem is the help he intended to deliver is illegal. And then they ended it by saying sick people deserve help, not a ticket to jail. And it was fucking great. And then after that, the New York Times picked up the story and the fucking Ohio just dismissed the case, was like, go away. And uh, when they released me, they told me you have to leave the state. It was really quite funny. And then I was like, what about my pot? And he goes, I knew you were going to say that. It was my public pretender. He goes, I don't have to handle that for you. That's a civil matter. And I only do criminal work. So you're on your own with that. You can go see the city. And I was just like, hmm. And um, so I left. And then High Times flew me over because then I basically showed 60 Minutes, which is a pretty big news station uh, around Amsterdam and brought them to my doctor and everything and had like a, the more serious side of the, of the High Times event. And they were so impressed that they actually didn't add any of that to the story because they didn't want to discredit what I was doing because they really thought it was valid. It was really quite cool. Um, so I'm only in a clip of it, uh, which is funny. Um, but And I spent days with them. Um, High Times literally flew me out there so I could spend time with Wally Schaefer. Uh, so, but while I was there, um, the judge was deciding on whether or not he gave me permission to go back. The judge released my passport and let me fly back to the Netherlands. Uh, he was deciding if he was going to let me basically, um, if he's going to prosecute me or not. And uh, so I, while I was in Holland, ended up getting a job for High Life magazine and became their first uh, English editor of their English edition of High Life, which was really an honor and really cool. So uh, I put out an issue with them, um, but I hated the winter and I hated the cold and I hated the rain and all the hash in Holland couldn't make me want to stay. So that's why after a year, I ended up moving back to California, ma mainly chasing the summer. And um, it was quite an experience, but but then I went to LA and had the most crazy experience because I met a multimillionaire publisher who had actually contracted AIDS and cancer. And he was working on a book about medical cannabis and he titled it a question of compassion. And ironically, I named my place, the San Diego cannabis compassion club. And in the media, I always used to say that it was, a, it was not a question of capitalism. It was more a question of compassion. You know, are you going to let somebody suffer if you can help them? That seems rather, you know, mean. And he liked that. And when I met him and I was in his office and I said, oh, a question of compassion. Where did you get that uh, title? He said, oh, I stole it. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, come here. And he shows me this big computer and he goes, yeah, look it up. And he looks up the newspaper article. He goes, see you, San Diego Union Tribune, somebody named Todd McCormick. And he was like, kid. You're supposed to be here right now. And it was really funny. And, uh, and it was like, we just had this meeting and he was just, he, he wanted me to write a book. He wanted me to make a grow video and he wanted me to go around the country going to like lectures and teaching people how to grow their own medicine. So he got the website growmedicine.com and, and that was what the whole concept was going to be. He gave me a quarter million dollars and I went and looked for a place to live. And that's, how I happened to trip into the Bel Air mansion that looked like a castle. And just, we had passed Prop 60, Props 215. And I was naive and thought it mattered. And I didn't understand federalism as well at the time. And I didn't understand that 
It did not create a positive conflict between the feds and the state of California. So I got some misinformation from a good attorney that if I didn't sell pot, I really couldn't be prosecuted. Um, so I didn't sell pot, but then I was prosecuted because even though they didn't have me for actually selling pot, they charged me with intent to distribute. So they got into my head and they knew that overwriting books and putting out movies and traveling around as a lecturer that I really wanted to just sell pot. So that was the basis they prosecuted me on. And um, it was crazy. Initially, they held me on a million dollar bail for over 4,000 plants. And um, my friends at the time uh, was Woody Harrelson, the, the actor, and Larry Flint, the publisher. And uh, they arrested me at 7 p.m. And by 6 a.m., I, ha I had Larry's attorneys at the police station introducing themselves as my new attorneys and trying to help me get out of the place. And, um, and Woody posted my bond in cash. Uh, it was lowered to half a million dollars and Woody posted it in cash, and, uh, which was pretty incredible. I you know, never would have expected to have that kind of support and, uh, and went on to fight them for years. I fought them 97, 98, 99. And uh, they kind of railroaded me. They took away my medical necessity defense. They said I couldn't raise, uh, the, couldn't say the word medical before the word marijuana. They redacted my book, How to Grow Medical Marijuana. Um, it was really just like, they just, the truth didn't matter. And um, basically they gave me the, they faced, a 10-year mandatory minimum if I go to trial and I was going to lose, or I could do a five-year sentence and retain my appeal rights. And at the time, I was naive, and I still believed that appeal could win. Um, or they wanted me to release my appeal rights, plead guilty, and go in and plead to the judge for fucking, you know, to be easy on me. And it's just not me, man. And I... I wasn't going to go grovel. I wasn't going to denounce cannabis. I wasn't going to debrief. I wasn't, I just wasn't going to play their game. So I accepted the five-year sentence with the hopes that I could appeal the sentence did. And I lost. Um, and then while I was traveling to the airport in December of 99, I got a traffic ticket and they used the traffic ticket to revoke my half million dollar bond and uh, pulled me back into jail. And uh, I started my five-year prison sentence because really they just wanted a pound of flesh. They didn't care how they got it, if that makes sense. And um, I self-surrendered on January 3rd, 2000 and started doing five years. It sucked. And then after a year and a half, they sent my lawyer in to ask me if I would debrief. It means cooperate. And I said, fuck no. And I sat there for another three and a half years because if you don't cooperate, you do time. It's really boils down to it that simple. So I just ate shit and you know, sat in prison. But I'm glad I did. I, I wouldn't have had, been able to live myself if I hadn't. So, you know, I mean, it was, it was difficult, but I'm grateful at how it all worked out. You know, like there's a line in a Grateful Dead song where they sing, sometimes you get shown the light and the grace and the sometimes you get shown the light in the strangest of places if you look at it right. And that's exactly how I felt. Like, even though I was being prosecuted, I had a lot of support and love from my friends. They were there when I got out. And, you know, you never want to fuck up and, and find out you don't have friends there for you. 
but to have something happen and find out you're surrounded by people that care about you is really a beautiful experience. And, um, and I'm still grateful for it, for that element of it to this day, as weird as it may sound. I've always felt like cancer was a beautiful, beneficial experience that I had a hard time appreciating while I was going through it. But I'm grateful that I went through it, you know, because I think it made me a, the person I am today and I'm proud of myself. So, but, you know, would you want to see a little kid have cancer? Never mind over and over and over again. Fuck no, you know, but if somebody had a magic wand and said they could wave it over my head and take away my cancer experience, I would break the wand. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a beautiful life story and the way you've gone on to accept it all just is uh, almost inspirational. I guess after you got out, at what point did the idea of AG Seedco cross your mind? Was there a specific moment where you thought, God, I got to do something with this? When did it all start? My intention when I came home in uh, the 90s was to start a seed company because I had been collecting genetics in Amsterdam and I had been collecting genetics from California for years and I had a lot of great connections in California for genetics. So when I came home, um, that was part of what I was doing was was growing out varieties and, and starting to breeding and making seeds. I was trying to convince my publisher that I needed at the time like a quarter million dollar GCMS. And a technician to run it because I wasn't educated in how to run it, but I needed the output. I needed the data that would come out of it as I was working because I needed continual monitoring of my genetics. Because uh, I saw them as little laboratories and I wanted to look into the laboratory window and see what the chemistry was that the lab technician was making on that day. Because I feel that the carbolic acid profiles build up and break down over the course of the flower and instead of just taking it at one point and looking at one peak and saying there it is i didn't i wanted to test daily if i could afford it um and look at it all the way past peak to you know rejuvenation and and just take an honest look at the way that at the time the terpenes were not part of the conversation um but just the way the carbolic acid built up and broke down um i i i came home when I was working in Amsterdam and I had the job, I became good friends with Robert Clark, who was a historian we all know. And he was working on hashish at the time and he schooled me on so much. So I came home a student of Rob's and I was very enthusiastic. I, I had first tried CBD in Amsterdam when he gave me some cannabis that was CBD and had no THC because he, he wanted to see if it helped my neck pain because he felt like my medical condition was obviously legitimate and he just wanted my feedback so the first time i ever used it was from rob and uh he taught me so much about the complexity of the cannabinoids the profiles the resin glands he was working on hashish and if you've read hashish it's just such a fucking awesome book and um and i i was right there so i hadn't the professor as my drinking buddy almost nightly for quite a long time while I lived in Amsterdam. I can't count the amount of nights that we spent together. And between spending time with him and old Ed, because he wanted to spend time with old Ed Holloway, because Ed had come to Holland before uh, Rob did, and Ed was already legendary when he left. And you know he was one of the old timers. There wasn't many guys like Greg that were actually growing cannabis in the 60s that are still around. And Ed turned 80 in 1996. So he was fucking old and he was a really smart guy, dude. He was 
He was on the team of engineers that broke the speed of sound out at Edwards Air Force Base in the late 50s. And he took an early retirement from um, either General Dynamics or one of these big companies. And when it, in the early 60s, his kids were coming back from the first tours of Vietnam. And his wife, he said, was drinking and she had what he called the empty nest syndrome because their kids were gone at college and now at war. And he, when his kids came home, they brought him some Vietnamese and Cambodian cannabis. And Ed wasn't a drinker and he fucking loved the weed. And he told me that after a few years, he couldn't stand his wife's drinking anymore. And he left her everything but a couple of his favorite airplanes because he owned his own airplanes. And um, he started flying around, going to military bases in places where cannabis was indigenous. And he could land and just say, hey, I'm doing research. And they didn't question him because he had clearance from his job that he still kind of worked for because he was an engineer. And he collected cannabis genetics through the 60s until the 70s. And old Ed then met Bernard Brunning when Bernard started the Mellow Yellow. And Ed was credited with teaching Bernard and all these young hippies at the time how to grow seedless cannabis and how he helped them improve the quality of cannabis they grew. And at the time, they called him Old Ed because he was already in his 40s and 50s when they were still in their early 20s. And when I met him, he was 79, turned 80 in 96 when I was with him. And then when I left and came back to California, we had a very good friendship. He left and he went to my house in Bel Air. And he went home to his family and got a cold. So he didn't come back to the mansion right away. And I got raided. And he fortunately wasn't there when I got raided. Um, but we still were friends even after that. He was he didn't come back and live with me while I was prosecuted, of course. But I did pick him up and he did stay with me when I was in uh, various places in L.A. Because one of his daughters lives out outside of LA. So I go pick him up and hang out with the old man. I absolutely adored him. I would, I would squeeze cannabis and hold it to his nose and he'd give me countries of origin, not names. It was fucking awesome. I love, I love spending time. I've, I started martial arts when I was 12 and I've always appreciated uh, our elders. And I see guys like Skunkman Sam and, and Greg and, and old Ed and Rob and Mel Frank, and you know, they were they were the people I looked up to when it came to, you know, information and experience. Wow, what an incredible story! I uh, I didn't know any of that. That's that's so very enlightening. And you just mentioned Mel Frank there. I was wondering, what was the first seeds you ever got from Mel? Funny enough. A weird thing you say that because uh, in 1996, when I met him at the at the 96 Cannabis Cup, um, I told him I was coming home. I was coming home in California, and I would look him up when I got there. So when I came back and I got the place in Bel Air, um, he was invited over, but he never made it. And he invited me over to pick up some of these skunk seeds that he had made the summer before, which is this 1996 skunk seeds. So I drove over there and I picked them up, and I drove home and I got busted like two weeks later. So I lost them. Uh, and then I go to prison. I get out of prison. Uh, years go by. I move out of LA and Jim would always come visit me. Uh, I, I don't know. I just always had hangout houses. So he would just make his way to come see me. And then when I moved up here, I have a really big house and he would come and stay with me and we go to cannabis cups and the other cannabis events. 
so we would always be buddies. Um, so I, I get this idea, like the AG seed co happened when the hemp farm bill passed. And I realized that, you know, Hey, seeds are legal, you know, cause all plant parts of the plant that contain less than three tenths of a percent THC were now taken out of the CSA and seeds contain zero cannabinoids. So I saw an opportunity there as well as maybe may take other people a little while to figure it out, but seeds are legal. So, um, I was like, Hmm. And, uh, because we passed prop 64 here in California, I'm legally growing the seeds. Everyone in the state of California over the age of 21 doesn't even need a doctor's note. They can legally grow six plants cannabis and you can get good amount of seeds off of six plants cannabis. So technically you can legally grow your seeds in some ways because they're not federally illegal or anything like that. They're much like heirloom tomato seeds where it's, you know, you, you can grow tomato seeds and then sell them on what we call eBay. And it's not really a big deal. And I, I, I think the same is with cannabis seeds now, because I don't know of any prosecutions that are going specifically for seeds. I mean, there's no drug content. It, they're not really manufactured. I mean, they're pr a product of nature, to say the very least. And uh, I think it's a difficult case for a prosecutor. And I don't think a prosecutor really wants to prosecute somebody for like a few grams of seeds. So as long as you pay your taxes and you're not, you know, getting caught selling kilos of butter or hash out to the world, I don't, I don't think it's that dangerous to sell seeds anymore um lots and lots of seed companies have popped up believe it or not if you drive up what we have called interstate five up in oregon there are full-size billboards with 1-800 numbers and websites for seeds so it's changing really big over here and uh so i started selling seeds and when i contacted jim i was already in contact with jim but i made a catalog and i sent it over to him and like the dad he is, he corrected my grammar and sent it back to me. <laughs> and uh, I only messed up like a comma and something else. It was really pretty good. Like I got like pretty much a 99. And, uh, and I was just like, and I said to him, I said, you know, man, you should let me sell your seeds too. They're not going to do anybody any good sitting in your refrigerator. And he said, you're right. He said, come over and get some. So I drove all the way back down to LA. And uh, when I got there, I had a deja vu because I hadn't visited him and it felt like a long time. And I said, Hey man, how long have you been living in this house? He said, I moved into it just a couple of years before you first visited it. And I said, really? He goes, yeah. And it was cute because at the time he had some seeds on the table. He goes, yeah, remember you came up here to pick up these exact seeds. And I went, wow, talk about life interrupted. He goes, yeah. You know, cause here we were 23 years later and I was just picking up the seeds just to do the same fucking thing I was going to do in 1997 and um they were still sitting in the refrigerator for me which was kind of a touching thing i know it sounds weird but like sometimes it's the little things in life that just blow you away and uh he didn't particularly save those seeds for me but he still had some when i was able to come back and get some so you know he's just he, i don't know man i absolutely adore mel frank he's I think one of the nice, coolest, kindest, humblest, best historians, best photographers, his cannabis photography back to the 70s is stunning. His use of the camera is, is magnificent. And I don't know anybody with as good of photos from the 1970s and early 80s of cannabis as, 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 he, as, as Mel Frank. His real name is Jim Goodwin, of course, but, you know, so... I, I, that's kind of how it all started really. And, and I didn't expect the skunk one seeds to smell anything but sweet. And when I grew them, 
I, he gave me multiple. He gave me 2010 seeds too that he made in 2010. And those did sell smell sweet. Um, but when I stopped and started thinking about the genetics, I kind of found it kind of like not too particular because him being friends with skunk man, Sam, and then both being old heads, he would have most likely gave him seeds from the selections that would have been more like what, what Jim would like rather than the newer stuff, which was more fruity. You know what I mean? So kind of not surprised that it was more Afghan dominant rather than the, uh, the Acapulco gold slash Colombian gold, because as he was doing his selections, I think that there was a certain amount of time where skunk one was, uh, evolving we would say you know what i mean from from really stinky and 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 acrid probably a lot more thiols than it has now to a lot less thiols and a lot more fruity kind of uh you know that passion fruit kind of yummy terpenes that you smell and you just want to keep keep smelling you know? at least that's my opinion of the evolution after talking to them both but they're kind of old and when i've asked skunk man sam what he gave him he said I don't, I don't remember <laughs> and then you know when you ask um Mel you know kind of you know they know they're skunk seeds they know they're the skunk one seeds but we're along the line I don't know and and I don't know how old they were in 1988 but I would easily think that they could have predated Sam moving there in 85 because by mid 88 he'd only been there for like let's say two and a half years you know, part of 85, 86, 87, and now you're into 88. So it could have easily been seeds that he had had that pre that goat went back to Santa Cruz before he went over there and started doing more selections and redefining what became skunk one. Because you understand the evolution of species in a way. You get exactly what I'm saying. You know, a lot of people don't. They think it was like a light bulb turning on. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. You know, I think we slowly moved away from the thiols. You know what I mean? Like, I think they're still present. I just think they're present in minute amounts. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I've I've considered that sort of thing for a long time, but it's good to hear that validated by your similar thoughts on it all. I was interested in asking you if you could give us a little rundown of the skunk you offer. I guess I hear a lot of people in the past few years talk about skunk as though it's cool because it's this good strain, but it's also like one of those older ones which like tended to yield quite nicely. And a lot of people these days are really over the lower exotic plant yields. Do you think that skunk could be something for those type people? I think a lot of people, yeah, I've, I've sold quite a few skunk seeds since I've released them. These, uh, these seeds that are currently available are the seeds that have only been reproduced twice since the 80s once in, in 1996 and again by me in 2019, 2020. Um, they are old cannabis. I mean, I don't, I don't know another way to put it. They haven't had any outside influence. They've been uh, inbred with themselves twice, uh, once in 96, once in, and they are old pot. I don't know another way to put it. A lot of people who've been growing them out love them. A lot of people have been, you know, talking about finding skunk scent and taste and aroma. Uh, a lot of people want to shoot them down, but I don't, I think it's like the haze. The more people that get the genetics, the more people are going to have to shut up and realize they're still around. And I, I think that's the similar situation with thiols present in the skunk. They're still around. I mean, it's impossible for me to believe that, that 
these terpene and thiol combinations that were existing 30 years ago just disappeared. It's not that they disappeared. It's just that we slowly bred away for them in favor of higher cannabinoid combinations with sweeter, more aromatic scents. It's really that simple. And as we did that, it made our gardens easier to hide because now it took on a sweet floral fragrance rather than a stinky, skunky, nasty, what's that dead shit in your backyard fragrance. And, and that made a big difference in the way that we were able to cultivate cannabis in urban communities. And I think a lot of people don't get that. Um, and until, you know, the 90s and beyond when carbon filters became the norm, a lot of people were stinking up their rooms and their neighborhoods trying to grow this stuff. I know I did. You know, my friend once, who used to sleep over all the time, used to say to me, bro, now when I smell a skunk, He's like, I like it because it reminds me of your bedroom and your garden. And I was like, oh, that's kind of funny, you know. But, you know, when we were a teenager, we used to sit up in my bedroom and smoke weed because my grandma used to let us. So it was the hangout spot, you know, you know what it's like when you're 14, 15, 16 years old. You got nowhere to go. And um, it was funny. But, you know, and it's funny how you, you start to like sense. Like now when I smell skunk, I, I like it. I like it. And like on the side of the road, it, Makes me reminds me of old weed, and the skunk I have still reminds me of old weed. There's still files present in it. You know, I just tell anybody that doesn't believe it, just freaking grow them. You tell me after you flowered it. You know. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting because we don't see files in any other mixture other than like on their own. Like it's like, you know, people talk as if there's one roadkill skunk and then nothing else like it. Do you think we'll ever see it? mixed with other things yeah you know the the rks that i got from jaime in alaska to me is just very afghan um it, it it's a decent smoke it's a beautiful bud i've taken high quality photos of it and shared them people loved it my girlfriend likes to smoke it it's peppery uh it's not my favorite um, but i'm a haze head and um but it, it's just not overwhelming and and you know, I have two of them and I sold a small batch of them and people that have grown them have agreed with me, but, you know, people are still condemning, oh, you can't have them like it's the Holy Grail or something silly. But, you know, you still see these skunk problems in hemp fields. So when I say problems, like the overwhelming scent of skunk or something rancid or acrid. Um, so there's still thiols in high numbers. So, you know, these people that are growing large amounts of, of low THC, uh, cannabis are also having neighbors complain about the smell of skunk and it's just not from a small batch it's from fucking hemp field um so that just tells me they're present uh it's just a matter of us breeding them up if we really want them back um i i say this though you know just like there's a synergy between the terpenes and the cannabinoids there might be more of a synergy between the thiols and the cannabinoids and the terpenes that we know right now and we perhaps are underestimating so it might be worth it for people to take the time to try to detect thiols and to try to bring back that funky musty stinky smell like i, I say it in two words because like I, I i feel like it's already very present in the skunk one seeds that i'm offering and that i have and that people are reporting the same thing i am um but you could do more with it. You know, if somebody were to take tens of thousands of these seeds or thousands of these seeds and start really going through them, you're going to find the Einsteins, the real genius plants in there 
And you're going to find the terpene combinations that are one in a thousand or one in a whatever, you know, one in whatever your lottery ticket ends up being. And you, and if you have the ability to clone it and carry on those genetics, maybe the whole community could share them because I have a feeling, unfortunately, a lot of times when these good plants pop up, they may fall into the hands of people that are not making cuttings, are not making seeds, are not sharing it. I've had a lot of my great friends in Northern California hand me one of the best buds I've ever smoked. And then I say, can I get a cutting? And they say, oh, dude, that's, that's the plant. I cut that down. I don't have cuttings of it. And I'd be like, really? He's like, dude, I had a hundred of them. And it's like, I get it. And then they're not home to take care of the cuttings. It's not their, it's not the way they do their, they did their thing back in the nineties. You know what I mean? Hey, they leave and they have to go sell their weed. It gets cold up there. There's no point of being up where you don't have electricity and you have outdoor plumbing in the winter if you don't have to be. And a lot of my friends used to go up, open up their places in the spring, crop out, leave in the fall and spend their summers down, uh, their winters down in LA and Southern Cal selling their pot and enjoying the beach and taking some time to themselves before they went and worked their ass off and prayed the helicopters didn't find them. That was the life of many of my friends for a long time. Wow. In one of your earlier answers, you, you mentioned how you're a friend with Woody Harrelson. Harrelson, yeah. And I've seen on your Instagram, you've also, you know, you've been in photos with Tommy Chong and Willie Nelson and Hugh Hefner. It's it's quite quite a good mixture you got there. I guess what I'm interested in is... They're all stoners. Yeah, right. Hugh Hefner, Hugh Hefner gave the money to found Normal in 1970. Keith Stroke presented his idea to the playboy foundation and half liked it gave him five grand and then gave him 50 and then funded him through the early 70s and used to even let normal use the playboy mansion for their parties and when i met half it was after i got raided and i was in the news a lot and when he met me he shook my hand he wouldn't let it go and he started telling me about his involvement with normal and i said half i know i'm friends with keith and he said, really? He goes, let's have him out for dinner. And I said, and uh, he invited me and Keith over for dinner. And I went and uh, we sat in the backyard and smoked weed together. And he talked to me about how he first smoked cannabis in the 1950s when the Beats, the beat, the, the Beats brought it to him, the, the Beatniks, the, the pre-hippies and uh, the Allen Ginsbergs and those poets and and he ate cookies because he couldn't smoke weed comfortably around a lot of the people that were in the magazine. So he had cookies made and he would secretly eat cannabis edibles. That was his trip. And I was an amazing experience, man. I mean, I met him 97, I guess, and then started going. He allowed me to come over. I guess the first time I had dinner with him was in 98. And then he let me come to all the Playboy parties, 98, 99, which was a lot of fun. And um, it was really quite touching. Um, I actually have a picture of him and the woman that was his assistant on the wall because uh, Joni was her name. And Joni took a liking to me. Um, she was a cannabis user. And unbelievably, she came down with cancer in 1999. And during the summer of 99, I was the one bringing her her medicine and spending time with her. And um, she passed away in September and I attended a funeral at the Playboy Mansion. It was pretty heavy. And I spent my last weekend at the Playboy Mansion in uh, 1999 
to 2000. Uh, that's where I was for the New Year's Eve. And then I had myself, I didn't even tell half I had to go to prison because I didn't have the heart to ruin his evening. I just felt so bad about projecting my sadness onto my friends that only the, the few people I was there with actually knew that I had to go to prison on Monday because I just didn't want to ruin anybody's New Year's Eve. I mean, it's fucking 1999, 2000. I didn't want to be a wet blanket, you know, and uh, it was sad. And uh, when I got out of prison, actually, I had the opportunity to use the Playboy Mansion to raise money uh, for the legalization effort. And I produced parties at the Playboy Mansion in 2007, 2008, and 2009. It was a total honor. In 2009, I even received a Lifetime Achievement Award or a Lifetime Dedication Award from Marijuana Policy Project on stage at the Playboy Mansion. And I, my mom was there. Like I let my mom come to the fucking Playboy party. It was pretty funny. And uh, it wasn't a Playboy party. It was a marijuana policy project party at the Playboy Mansion. But I was one of the producers of the party, so I couldn't invite anybody I wanted. Um, but it was pretty funny to have my mom at Half's house while I get a fucking Lifetime Achievement Award. Like, who would have ever? It's weird. The whole experience, bro, has been so strange. As you said earlier, you know, the truth is much stranger than fiction. You know? And the... Uh, my first party, I had uh, Joe Rogan emceed, Blues Traveler played, and uh, the gentleman named DJ Pooh, who's one of my best friends to this day, uh, who made the movie Friday and produced all the albums with Snoop Dogg and Ice Cube, uh, he DJed for me. He was my DJ at my party because I didn't know anyone else. <laughs> so I asked DJ Pooh, and uh, it was really fucking great. And uh, my second year, Perry Farrell of Jane's Addiction played for me because back in the 90s, we were on this thing called Spitfire Tour together. And uh, even crazier than that, in July of 1999, I got to open up Woodstock. I got to walk out on stage at 11.35 a.m. on uh, Friday, the 23rd of July, and say, welcome to Woodstock. My name's Todd McCormick. I'm with Spitfire Tour. And I, I talked about legalizing cannabis. And I got to do that uh, Friday with, uh, oh, come on, Andy Dick. And then, uh, and then Kennedy, and she got booed off stage, and I had to do 20 minutes at Woodstock, improvised, because the other girl that was supposed to speak made it two minutes, and she got booed off the stage. The people at Woodstock were going, they were screaming, show your tits, show your tits. And she was the girl that was the VJ from MTV, and she's like, I will not show you my boobies. It was fucking a moment. And, and, and I looked at her like, do you want me to get the mic? Because I was kind of emceeing our little set. And she went like this and I went and got the mic and everybody started cheering. And I was like, uh, and my manager's like yelling, keep going. You have another 20 minutes. And I was like, who wants 20 more minutes of me? And everybody started cheering. And I was like, oh my God. And I had to go out and do 20 more minutes of like, let's end the drug war, which wasn't really hard for me to do. I mean, me talking about cannabis is really quite fluid, but uh, it was quite the experience. And then the next day I got to do it with Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead. Me and Mickey Hart and this girl, Julia Butterfly, was fucking great. Mickey Hart and Rosie Perez, uh, she was there too. She spoke about AIDS activ activism. Mickey Hart spoke about uh, deforestation and why we have to stop deforesting. And um, it was really cool. I was actually pretty blown away. Like, the fuck? I grew up listening to Woodstock on my mom's albums. And here I was, like, meeting Michael Lang and fucking wearing an all-access pass and going out on stage as myself talking about weed and nobody knew who I was, which was really quite strange, you know, because I'm not a musician. I'm not famous and any on any level. But I showed a short video of me getting busted 
and a little bit of history of cannabis. And then I started talking and people just clicked and they loved it. And the whole little thing went over really well. But uh, while I was being prosecuted, I really turned it into a, a soapbox. Believe it or not, I toured around to almost all, not all of them, but quite a few of the major universities um, speaking about legalizing cannabis. Uh, we created this group called Spitfire, which was a uh, actors, musicians, and activists. It was the idea of Zach De La Rocha of Rage Against the Machine. And he had the idea of like putting rock stars and activists together and going to colleges because then the kids would show up and listen to the rock stars and maybe, you know, get a little bit taken away from the activists. Uh, so it was cool, man. I toured with Woody Harrelson, um, Chris Novoselic of Nirvana. He spoke about um, censorship in music. Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls, she spoke about gay and lesbian rights. Kennedy, she spoke about conservative issues. Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys, he was just fucking dynamic and spoke about everything that blew our mind. Um, we had quite a few people. Andy Dick was on tour with us. Um, Mickey Hart joined us for an event. It was really quite cool because the woman that put it together was normally a music uh, industry, like she would produce concerts. So she knew all these like Red Hot Chili, she knew everybody. And she, so, she, so she could just put put us like, you know, what the fuck am I doing touring around with a guy from Nirvana? But 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 it was great. And me and Chris became good friends and still friends, still friends. Last time I checked, I mean, <laughs> so I, I think the world of him really. He does this thing called Fear Vote, and he's trying to get uh, ranked choice voting passed in in the in North America, where your vote always counts, meaning that you pick your favorites. And then if your first one doesn't win, all your votes go to your second choice. And then it, it just creates a situation where every vote counts. It's really cool. Uh, the politicians are scared shit of it because it's not just 50-50 at that point. It's like, you can't be an asshole because if the person you're, you, 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 would, you, would, you would get the votes from as their second choice if you don't do good. It's really cool. I love the work he does politically. But it was fucking dynamic and I got to do a lot of fun shit. Uh, when I got out of prison, I was really more determined to be an activist than I was ever. And uh, I met up with some guys from Canada. We made the first documentary called The Union, The Business Behind Getting High. And that did really well for us. And then I got the opportunity to produce Playboy parties. And that went really well for us. And then I rented 100,000 square feet at the Los Angeles Convention Center in 2009. <clears throat> and I held the first THC Expo. I had almost 300 companies. And I had over 40,000 people show up that first Saturday uh, that the fire marshal almost shut me down multiple times. It, it was really quite amazing. And um, Tommy Chong is somebody I met in the neighborhood of LA. When I moved to Bel Air, I started meeting celebrities. And um, it's, it's kind of strange like that, but you just meet your neighbors. And if, if you are friendly with them, you never know. You make friends in the strangest places. So Tommy and I became kind of buddies, like shared numbers and would talk. And um, Tommy was very supportive of me before I went to prison because he felt like what the prosecution was just fucking horrible. And then they prosecuted him for bongs while I was in prison. I couldn't believe it. Tommy and I went through the same halfway house within a few months of each other and stayed in touch after we got out of prison. And, um, and he was helpful with the Playboy parties and the way that he was help, trying to help me connect with other celebrities because we were just trying to get them to try to speak up and get involved. I mean, we're not rich like Nike. We can't just hire Michael Jordan. I got to like sit down with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and try to like guilt him into saying good things about medical cannabis, even though he uses medical cannabis for his own headaches. Um, and um, true story, actually. And uh, but the funny part is, is, is realistically the, the party wasn't the point. It was the networking that was important. 
you know what I mean? Because it gave us like a, hey, can I talk to you about our activism? And would you donate or would you help out? Tommy was always down to help out, but he never wanted to come to the parties because he hated being like signature mode and he just hated it. But he always came to the pre-planning parties, which was really more like touching to me that he was like, he cared. He He's a great, great person. I can adore Tommy Chong, but I called him up one day and he has an electric hot rod. And I said, uh, I was high. I'm always high. But I said, uh, hey, Tommy, do you still have your electric hot rod? And he's like, yeah. And I said, hey, can I borrow it? And he got real quiet for a good minute. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I suppose you can. He's like, where is it you want to go, Todd? I said, oh, Tommy, I'm not trying to go anywhere. I rented the LA Convention Center and I'm going to hold like the first indoor cannabis convention on a large scale here in North America. And I want to put your car on display because I'm doing this whole hemp education. It's good for the environment thing. And, and, I, and, I, and I love what you're doing with your electric hot rod. To me, it's like the environmental side of you that nobody knows. Like he drives a blacked out Prius. Like he, he's, he's not a flashy dude. He's not wearing Rolexes and fucking gold watches. And he's not that dude. He's like environmentalist, like politically cool. Like he's just like they say, when you meet your heroes, you're often disappointed. If you get to meet Tommy, you'll be nothing but blown away because he's just such a good person. His family's so cool. His kids are so cool. He's just amazing. And, um, and he let me borrow his car, man. I, I, he, he hooked me up with Hippie Motors and they delivered the car to the LA Convention Center. And he came down that day to see what I was up to. And I opened the doors and the place got flooded. And he was so proud of me. It was fucking great. I got countless photos of him, like giving me hugs and being happier than anything. Cause it, it felt like vindication, you know, like here we are standing here as a demographic that can't be ignored. And um, it felt good. It, it was a real powerful moment. Fl Woody flew out from Ohio, from Hawaii just to come to my event. Um, you know, it, it it was really quite touching. Like my friends have been great friends. Like I feel nothing but blessed for the people I've had in my life, and so so fortunate. And you know, not just because they're famous, just because they're such good people uh, on such a spectrum of of doing good things in the community on different levels. And, um, it's been beautiful. And, uh, and then I did my second documentary with the same guys. We did the culture high, uh, which included, a really a great cast. Um, in 2012, I happened to be getting the cannabis culture award from Ben Dronkers with, uh, Richard Branson and Dr. Lester Grinspoon. And I used the opportunity to ask Richard Branson, if he would consider being in our second documentary. And he said, maybe, and then he said, yes. And then when he saw the film, he liked it so much that he took it on his own accord and launched it for us on October 1st, 2014, which was pretty incredible. And he wrote this beautiful blog about legalizing uh, can, you know, cannabis and what's going on with the war on drugs. And I mean, it was really amazing because you can't get a billionaire to do anything he doesn't want to do if he doesn't want to do it. And to have that purity was just incredible. And uh, I think a lot of, because of that, he helped us uh, get a lot of international press and then uh, it was picked up by Netflix and it was shown in 70 countries in 15 languages for three years uh, with, you know, various uh, transcriptions and, uh, and voiceovers. So it was, it, I don't know, this whole way through. And then unfortunately, when Jack died in 2010, his publisher contacted me and said, hey, you're it. You know, we got to put the book back out. And um, at that point, we only had the 11th edition done. So um, 
I put together the 12th edition of the book and I reached out to a bunch of our friends like like Woody and Tommy and Vivian McPeak of Hempfest and Debbie Goldsberry of Cannes. Um, and I asked them to write uh, memorials to Jack, Steve Hager of High Times, uh, Steve Bloom, I think I got in there too, uh, maybe Malcolm McKinnon as well. I'd have to go through the list, but uh, they were all really nice to me. I mean, Tommy, when I wrote to him and asked him to write a memorial for Jack Harry, he didn't answer my email with a yes or a no. He just wrote it and sent it back. That was his reply. And I was just like, wow. And uh, and I don't know, it was touching because Jack touched all our lives. I mean, I used to say that he didn't just touch our lives, he penetrated our lives. And it was beautiful to know him and to be so close to him. And, you know, I, uh, I'm honored to still be close to all of his kids. And, you know, I wish he was still here. I love him very much. He was the father I never had on a lot of levels. I mean, Jack was great. And, um, yeah, I wish we still had him here today for sure. And uh, I think he'd be really proud to see legalization and the changes that have occurred. I mean, for Jack, it was not about, you know, protecting the profits of farmers. It was about liberating the people that were affected by the drug war and that were sitting in prison. And, and you know, he made me promise that I would fight as an activist until I was 84 or dead. And uh, I don't know, I just feel like a lot of my passion and determination came from him. And, uh, yeah, I miss him. I know he was someone that really touched my life and, uh, and many others in such a positive way. I think a lot of us early activists um, would say that it was reading The Emperor Wears No Clothes that kicked us in the ass and, and really motivated us to do something about the injustice. It was cannabis prohibition. And uh, yeah. And then in 2011, uh, on a brighter note, Seattle Hemp Fest turned 20 years old. So I helped Vivian McPeak put together a 20 chapter book uh, called Protestable, which kind of stands for Protested Festival. And um, we wanted to highlight all the work that um, Seattle Hemp Fest had done to, to work to legalize. And um, it's been a hell of a journey to be really blunt. I mean, um, I don't know, I'm proud of where we are now. I'm glad to see the liberation. I'm happy to see cannabis stores. I believe in cannabinoids that they, it will help society like it's helped me. And I wish more people had access to cannabis because I believe that if they did, you know, society would be a much more beautiful place and that less people would be addicted to pharmaceuticals and alcohol and various substances that, you know, you just don't need if you have good herb in your life. So yeah, hell of a journey. So, you know, here we are now, and I feel like even selling seeds is a form of activism because, you know, I'm, you know, I've lived in the same place for 11 years. I've only been selling seeds for two and a half. My life hasn't really changed since I started selling seeds. Um, it's really not about the money. It's really just about trying to like, do good for a community that's meant a lot to me for a long time and that's you know kind of helped me survive i mean i don't think i would be where i am today if it wasn't for cannabis or the insightful doctors that i had that were willing to give me cannabis over opiates you know and i'm i'm just really grateful it's you know, so i cannabis is my form of appreciation and i think 
the best way I can honor it is to spread the seeds around and give other people the opportunity of growing and experiencing, you know, the varieties that have come through me, you know, and I didn't invent cannabis, so I can breed it together all I want, but you know, I'm not going to be one of these guys that thinks he's cool or a fucking rock star breeder or any of that. I think, you know, everybody should do it. And I'm just grateful to be the bridge between, you know, these old growers, these old breeders and a new generation. What a powerful recount there of your life story. That's incredible to say the least, you know, and then thanks so much for sharing the, the very personal relationship you have with Jack. That's, really inspiring we had just a small number of questions left including our rapid fire ones so we're sort of on the tail end of it all i appreciate your time sure 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 it's been fun talking to you. you know covid's kept us in the house and i used to go to coffee shops and meet strangers and talk to them for hours and become friends and it was great and i you know haven't been out of the house in a while it's just me and my girlfriend working all the time so it's kind of nice to, to to have been talking to you and going over this stuff is I, I didn't realize I haven't talked about Jack in a while. So my own surprises in this conversation, but thanks for uh, entertaining it. And I hope that people take something from it uh, to say the least. Look, I'm sure they will. It's been great to, from my position. That's for sure. I, it's, I think I could probably guess the answer to this question, but I haven't asked you what style of growing do you like? Are you a soil organics guy? How do you do it? Yeah. I, I organic pots. Um, I get LED lights and I get drip run to waste irrigation. I use dosatrons, like, you know, um, <clears throat> but I use a roots organic 707 as a medium. I love it. I, I swear by it. Uh, I think it's a very good company. They put out a very good product. Um, I use some of uh, Arian's greenhouse uh, powder feeding. I like his uh, bio line and his, his mineral line, both very good. Um, I use those in addition. Uh, I don't really spray much on my plants. I, you know, I like extracts and I don't want anything on the flowers other than water. Um, you know, as far as growing tips, I would say that a long time ago, I started using um, ionized water, which is electronically ionized for its acidity or alkalinity. And you can use this water to either degrease or um, basically debug and it doesn't leave anything behind. So I've been recommending to my friends that they buy these uh, water ionizers and they start to use like high alkaline water in order to rinse off powder and mildew um, and acidic water to deal with bugs uh, because acid rain showed us that we kill the insects, um, but acid rain also kills the insects. <laughs> so if you use an acidic water, you can actually do it without harming the plants. Uh, the alkaline water, though, I am very hesitant to spray on flowering plants because the high alkalinity will emulsify the oils. Uh, so you want to use it more sparingly than the acidic water. Um, but it works great. Um, I've, uh, you know, also, if anybody's still deep, this deep into listening, um, I recommend using hemp seed oil as a solvent to dissolve the trichrome heads on the cannabis flowers that people grow. 20 years ago, I was sitting home rather stoned and I, I was using a Marinol and I had used an AB epoxy that day, uh, which is, you know, two parts resin that makes a hard bind. And I was thinking, shit, synthetic molecules suspended in sesame oil. What if I used organic cannabinoids and suspended them in hemp seed oil? So I went and I scooped up some resin powder and I put it in some hemp seed oil that I had 
heating up in a frying pan and it, it melted into the hemp seed oil and decarboxylated and I put it on muffins like it was a butter and I got really high. And um, I started playing with putting the, the grinding up the cannabis or just using my, because um, <clears throat> I have uh, sieve screens you know, 60 mesh and 150 mesh and a bunch in between. So I would collect my resin powder. And uh, if you just put resin powder in a jar of hemp seed oil um, and you agitate it a little, the hemp seed oil being an oil will break down the trichrome, which is also an oil, and it will release the acids and the tri and the terpenes into the oil. And then you can take like a like stainless steel strainer or whatever you want, and you can actually uh, strain the hemp seed oil of any of the thicker waxes that didn't dissolve with the hemp seed oil as easily. Um, and uh, you can get that out. And then what you have left is <clears throat> phytocannabinoid infused, non-decarboxylated and all the terpenes in, in the hemp seed oil. And you can do this in your refrigerator. It takes like 10 to 20 days sometimes for the oil to break down the trichromes. But once it does, it's so much better than, uh, you know, like an alcohol-based um, ethanol extract because you know alcohol doesn't evaporate off to like a buck set 170 degrees Fahrenheit and by the time it does it's evaporated away most of the more you know monoterpenes and it has decarboxylated the cannabinoids um, so I had this realization that if we could consume uh, higher amounts of phytocannabinoids without decarboxylating them we might find that it's a better medicine for a lot of people who are not trying to get uh, like loopy, like if you have a little kid that's having seizures uh, or like me, a little kid at the time that was going through chemo, you probably don't want him all stoned out. But if you can actually give him uh, phytocannabinoids and hemp seed oil, um, <clears throat> which in itself has a perfect balance of essential fatty acids, um, then you can actually medicate the child without drugging the child for lack of better terminology, but people would get it. Um, and that can be very beneficial because cancer patients have shown that using like a thousand milligrams of, deca of decarboxylated THC was beneficial for uh, the anti-inflammatory effects of like reducing tumor sizes. And my thought is that you can actually take thousands of milligrams of phytocannabinoids that are not decarboxylated and have the anti-inflammation properties without being completely sleeping for the next 48 hours, which is nice if you're, you know, if you're dying, you want to be awake for most of the rest of your life, you know, and not completely drugged out and loopy. So um, I really recommend that people start looking at that, you know, home growing is blowing up now that it's legal and people have the ability of, of making their own medicine instead of going out and buying it, you know, $80 an eighth in a jar. Um, they can have big branches of it for practically nothing. So, you know, once they have an abundance of cannabis, um, starting to look at hemp seed oil um, and preserving it is, is much better because if you make jars of uh, phytocannabinoid infused hemp seed oil, you can keep that in cold storage for a very long time. And those phytocannabinoids and terpenes will remain um, very viable. And the, the oil smells amazing, man. Some flower terpene combinations smell so good with the nutty scent of hemp seed oil it's crazy it's absolutely wonderful um so my little bit of advice to anyone who's still listening <laughs> <laughs> no that's great i'm gonna have to give that a try myself actually we've 
spoken a lot about some of the more old school strains and so i would be keen to hear what are your thoughts specifically on the new stuff you know the hype exotic stuff so you're a fan of it are you not a fan of it and will we ever see any of it blended in with some of your lines um sure i'm i love cannabis i'm a big pothead i mean i probably smoked four joints while we've been sitting here talking but i i, I love pot i mean the my complaints about the pot that has been floating around prior to me starting AG is that it's all very similar. And I think that is, it is, you know, it doesn't, it's not good for the community to the degree in which there's a lot more diversity in the genetics that I've experienced than we're seeing in the marketplace. So I'm trying to affect that. Um, it's just that in a way, I don't think the high is as good as it could be in, on many levels. I mean, I unfortunately think that, you know, unless you grow your own cannabis, you you kind of don't understand what I'm saying, but there's so much that happens negatively to cannabis in post-harvest. It's really handling that ruins most pot. And when people get it and they don't dry it correctly and they lose some of those terpenes in a flash cure or a flash dry, and they bottle it up or it was too moist and it kind of gets that funky little smell that doesn't go away. Um, if it's not handled properly, properly the, the variety itself isn't going to matter and 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 i've joked with people that i can go pick hemp and cure it and dry it properly and it'll smoke and taste and smell better than some of the stuff i get from commercial farms just because if you put the time into retaining the terpenes and the oil content and doing that slow dry and slow cure because a lot of people don't understand well, even what's a cure well the flower is covered with oil and think of it like varnish on a piece of wood. If you put varnish on a piece of wood and you leave the piece of wood in the sun, the, the, the wood soaks up the varnish and there's no protective layer. And it, if it rains on it, it kind of doesn't really uh, repel it. But if you take that same varnished piece of wood and you put it in the shade and that, that coat of oil doesn't soak in, but it thickens, it then becomes a protectant to the wood and you can pour water on it and it just runs off. That happens on a microscopic level on cannabis flowers. And when people allow that, that thin covering of oil residue to that waxiness to harden up, it protects the humidity the bit that's left, should be less than 10%. But then the bud has body, it has flavor, it has terpenes present, and it's a really good smoke. And I'm, you know, I'm, I like fresh pot. I like smoking weed a week after I cut it down and I can barely get it to burn, but it burns perfect because there's so much oil content. But then I also like pot that I've let sit in the freaking, you know, can of troll for eight months or whatever. Like, like literally I have a lot of old weed. I have RKS from last year. I smoked some of it earlier today and I still like it, but it's a year it's September last year. So now it's a year and a month old. Um, so but I don't sell it. So I end up with bags of weed, you know, and then they turn brown after they oxidize because the lights cut to them and, you know, and it's freaking hilarious. But if you, if you cure it well and those oils are still present, the quality of it lasts a lot longer. So, you know, a, a lot of how you're going to feel cannabis is, is determined by how well it was handled and how well it was cured before it got to your plate. And, um, yeah. So I think if everybody, if you had every clone that all these people were growing, all the new stuff, I bet you'd grow great weed with it. 
I bet you grow it and you might leave it a little longer. You might bring it into late stage. You, you might let the little, you know, <clears throat> little pistols wither away and turn into little resin globs. Like you might treat it a little differently than the grower that you got it from. And you might like it a little, you, you might on the other side, you might harvest it a little early, might like, like the high a little lighter. And, and that dial a high is something a lot of people don't realize either. Cause like if you harvest early, you get a different sensation from the smoke. And if you harvest it late stage and, you know, you can, you know, take things like haze and let it go really late stage. And it's really trippy, man. And you could take like Afghanis and harvest them early, like week six, week seven. And they're not heavy body highs. They're really almost kind of hazy where they're like light and trippy. So trying to teach people that there's so much more than one dimensional cannabis has been kind of tough because a lot of people don't, they just don't see the spectrum. You know, like you were saying, they think there's one, there's one RKS, there was one skunk. And it's like, no, man, it was a body of plants. It was like, I don't even know what region, but, but when I talked to Rob Clark and I talked to Skunkman Sam, you know, Skunkman Sam has gone through Afghanistan and collected seeds. I believe him. I don't know many other people that have been there and done that. So, and he has the genetics. So what the fuck, you know, take his experience and, you know, it's what it is. But when all those Afghans started coming over, it was this region that produced these these plants that were like that. And I think that a lot of people are going to find them again. You know, I think that if, you know, if ever this world goes to peace and stuff, maybe we, we would find a lot of these absolutely amazing Hindu Kush, Indian varieties, Chinese varieties, Afghan, Pakistan. I mean, these, these, this is the birthplace of cannabis people. This is where we need to go back and start looking around. I mean, the Himalayas, Nepal, I mean, I, every time I, I see people that are in foreign countries like this and they contact me for seeds, I'm like, no, 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 you should be going out and collecting seeds and geographically collecting them. So you know where, where they came from, what region, you're not going to give people up, but make them available, bring them out of the, bring them to market, you know, because that's what we need to have happen again. You know, I would love to be able to buy seeds from Thailand tomorrow on Amazon and then actually come from thailand you know or some seeds from colombia or some from michoacan or acapulco i please you know it'd be great i would be thrilled i the only sad part is is that i, I think there's been a lot of you know <clears throat> european seed merchant influence in almost all the cannabis producing regions around the world and unfortunately almost all of it has been contaminated with uh good intention genetics so when we move on to our final questions we have a few fan submitted questions that i think are interesting and the first one is how far do you plan on taking the northern lights lines like do you see yourself going to like an f5 and f6 sort of thing and as a follow-up would you ever release the famous northern light as an s1 i think maybe they're referring to purist indica the purist indica um, you know, it's funny is Greg told me that he didn't send purist Indica to Neville and, uh, I get it. And, um, I'm going to release it cause it's Greg's wishes. And I feel like I'm just like, you know, I was on the phone with Greg earlier today, you know, whatever you want me to do is fine. You know, I feel like I'm more of a conduit than I am, you know, the, the, you know, I'm trusted and I'm lucky. I, I, I'm grateful that these people like me and I'm grateful that they've entrusted me with the genetics. I don't know another way to put it. 
uh, I am going to release pure syndica. Like I released, you know, instead of just hybrids, I kind of wanted people to have the ability to have these things isolated. Um, and as an F2 is the only way I can do it realistically, other than S1 in them. And S1 in them kind of takes away the male ability of people to breed. And I'm, I'm really not trying to stifle other people's ability to work with these genetics. I'm trying to enable it. And um, I do, you know, something that gets confused though is taking things F2, F3, F4, F5 does not necessarily make them better. It does not necessarily make them more stable. According to Rob in Marijuana Botany, uh, it creates more uh, really uh, uh, more variation within the prodigies the further you get into this inbreeding. So uh, you're always, you know, cannabis is, is an obligate outcrosser, just like humans. It doesn't want to be inbred with its family. It wants to be outcrossed if you really want to make good things. Um, I'm definitely going to make the genetics I have available to people as I have been like, you know, F2 in the haze, the skunk and um, <clears throat> the NL, but I've been selling hybrids of my own since I started. They were the first things I started selling were the, were the crosses with on haze. And I'm going to continue to be making, you know, I'm just so into it. Like I'm going to constantly release the genetics because, you know, you only live so long and, you know, I'd like to, you know, leave as big of a mark on the planet as I can in a positive way before I check out, which I will inevitably do at some point. So, you know, trying to get it out there is cool. And, you know, as long as I'm improving what I'm doing, I'm going to keep doing it. But like trying to, you know, these people that are like, oh, F99 or whatever, it's like cut out with the bullshit, really. You know, I mean, I'm happy with a really good F1 and consistency and uniformity, like, you know, head over heels for the serious seeds offerings that Simon puts out because they're true F1s. And, uh, and he'll always put out awesome weed because they're true F1s. And, uh, and I'll make, I'll always be making F1s and S1s. And when it's appropriate, like it is right now, I'll be making F2s. But I don't see myself, you know, I don't know, you know, once you've, once you have, I, I'll make original hay seeds again when I run low on the amount I've already made, if that makes sense. But there's no need for me to to replicate it now while I still have pretty good quantity of original hay seeds from 2019. Um, but I will in the future. I mean, I you know I have dreams of of you know I've you know I want all the plants, all the plants. I'm a gardener, you know. I, 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 you know, people like, how can you have 4,000 plants in one house? And I'm like, so easy. <laughs> like I was partying all the time too. If I had actually been focused, I would have had 40,000 plants in that fucking place. I, it's just, you just, you want all the phenotypes. You want to go through all of them. You want to try all of them, you know? And what's funny is I would have thrown 90% of those plants away and only taken the 10% that I really liked if I had left to my own devices and allowed to, continue on what i was doing and now it's the same way i go through shit tons of plants and throw shit tons of plants away that i don't like they're eh. you know if i won't replicate anything that i don't fall in love with you know so if it and, and testing to me is not as important as falling in love with it if 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 it doesn't you know if it doesn't appeal to the human i really don't care if it appeals to the machine you know i'm not doing this to have fast quarter mile times or the highest THC levels. You know, I, I think a lot of that's missing the point entirely. 
Yeah, no, very comprehensive. I like that. And it sort of segues nicely into the next question, which is if you had to give a generalized answer, where would you like to see the future of breeding going? Quality over quantity. You know, that's my goal. I mean, I'm, I, I think that we're going to see the bottleneck kind of come off and we're going to see cannabis varieties, you know, from all weeks of its potential uh, start to surface as time goes on. And more and more and more people are going to realize that, you know, there's a lot more, you know, to cannabis than just, you know, quick, thick buds that are full of resin. You know, there's nuances to these terpenes and these, you know, subtle cannabinoid combinations that are amazing. I mean, Mel Frank told me one of his favorite varieties that he grew and he smoked, he got tested and he came back at like sub 9% THC. And he was like, didn't expect that, you know, but the way it smelled, the way it tasted, the way it made him feel felt great. And, you know, that's that, you know, if that makes sense, you know what I mean? Like, really, I guess it isn't just THC at the end of the conversation that matters. It's did you enjoy it? And if, if you didn't enjoy it, you're probably not going to smoke any more of it. But if you didn't enjoy it, you'd probably be quick to roll up another, you know, second or third joint, do a second or third dab, you know. Yeah, here, here, quality over quantity for sure. The final fan submitted question we have is, how did you develop your cloning tech with the domes and the fluorescent lighting or did you get that from someone else? That was old tech. I mean, um, so I don't use domes downstairs right now. I have a, a humidity controlled room. I, I monitor my PPD levels. I keep my uh, mother room at around 72 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit. And I keep my humidity around 70, you know. Uh, <clears throat> and if you keep your humidity levels at high, the plants don't wither. Um, the domes are, when I was living in LA, it's a lot more dry. So if you were looking at that rack of uh, shells, that was from the, the sake, that was from select strains when I started my nursery. Um, that was one of the clone racks for my nursery. Um, but LA is a really dry place. So in order to compensate for the dryness, I can't humidify the whole room. And I had hardwood floors and you don't want to humidify a room with hardwood floors. So, <clears throat> so I just use domes and they work rather good. Um, cloning's easy. I mean, I've, it, I'm, my problem has been, I've had too green of a thumb, you know, it's gotten me in trouble over and over again. I got out of prison in 2004 and in between all the activism that I explained, I got prosecuted in 2006, 2009, uh, and also 2013 through 2017 uh, for cultivating cannabis. I was raided in 20, 2006, 2009, and 2012, and I wouldn't cooperate. So I got prosecuted every single time. And um, <clears throat> I think there's no other way to do it, actually. But um it's been a pain. Uh, and, and this is why kind of now I'm kind of doing what I'm doing because I'm able to kind of grow on a small scale and it, it is all about quality. It's not about quantity. And it's, you know, I kind of feel like I'm doing a service for the community. It's kind of, it sounds weird, but it's true. No, I, I don't have, I don't know. I'm already happy. I'm already where I want to live. I'm already, you know, doing what I want to do. So like I said, my life hasn't changed much in the time I've started the seed company. You know, in many cases, I'm using the same table, same equipment that I was using before I had the seed company. So, you know, I'll just continue this. I mean, 
I could see in the future trying to sell authentic genetics to a bigger company so that I could, you know, get like my own winery and, and have my own crew and have greenhouses and be able to, on a much larger scale, be able to breed. That would be my dream and be able to then sell the, you know, <clears throat> the plants, the seeds that I make through my, you know, sold company. Because, you know, there's a part of me that doesn't want to be a secretary and doesn't enjoy the business side of it as much as I just enjoy growing. That's where my heart is. That's where my passion is. I like writing. I like creating content and educating, you know, sitting there, you know, sending invoices and packing seeds is rather a burden, but I'm grateful for it. But it's not exactly what I wanted to be when I grew up, you know, but it's cool. I'm dealing with it for the time being. My eyes hurt from doing emails, but it's cool. <laughs> no, I can understand. Yeah, you're a man who wants to be among the plants, not the computer screens, I feel for you. So with that, we're on to our final five quick questions before we wrap this one up. We'd love to ask everyone these questions. So the first one is, what's the single most memorable experience with cannabis you've ever had? I'm probably getting high with my mom that first time in the car because it was so, what the fuck, you know? It was like, I just, I never, I never, I never felt that way before. Giddy and hungry, like everything was funny and I didn't have any pain. I wasn't nauseous. And, you know, when you're going through cancer, you're feeling pretty low, you know, like you're depressed, you're, you're, you physically ache, you're, you're, you're mentally strained, you're worried, you're anxious. And to be able to get high, you can't, un I can't underestimate that. It was just, it was a huge difference, you know, and, uh, that's probably why I became such a passionate advocate and activist because it made a really deep impact on my life and my health and my well-being and I feel grateful to it because of it. Yeah, powerful. So on the other end of the spectrum, was there ever a time when maybe all your peers or your friends are really hyping something up and you're getting really excited for it and then you finally try it and you're like, this is it? What is runts? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cute. But, you know, Skittles was one of those too. You know, uh, I'm old. So when I first got handed a Skittles bud, I was like, guys, I smell skunk one. And they're like, mm, Skittles. I'm like, mm, skunk one. It's, you know, because I don't know some of the, because I've had the ability to work with some of these old genetics in their pure form, I kind of can smell them. I can see the primary colors, if that makes sense. I can smell the primary colors coming through. So, yeah, you can't really hide it. And um, it's happened more than once. You know, a lot of the stuff that's come out in the last, you know, cookies, please, you know, like a lot of the stuff that's come out has been like, it's okay, you know. I mean, I like cookies. I'll smoke cookies. Sometimes it's really good. Uh, sometimes not so great. Uh, Jack Harrow, same thing. You know, I used to love Jack Harrow when we first got it from Sensi Seeds when it was really hazy. But then they changed it in 1996. They crossed it with the skunk, kind of imitated the SSH. Um, it was their version of SSH. It was called Jack Flash. And it was a heavier version that came out around 1996 from Sensi Seeds. And they kind of replaced Jack Hera with Jack Flash. And a lot of the Jack Hera that we now refer to 1997 onward is really Jack Flash. And it's really like a super silver hazish because it's really a haze. Uh, cross with skunk, which is what Super Silver Haze was. It was Neville's Haze cross with skunk. So 
it, it was a similar recipe done a little differently with similar plants. Um, <clears throat> but, and it's funny because I like the original Jack Herr and I like the original Neville Hayes more than I like the Super Silver Hayes or the Jack Flash. Um, but Jack Frost, XJ39, a lot of these Jack Crosses that we see now are not very hazy. Um, but I don't, you know, Jack, his kids are using the name and they're trying to create a brand. And I'm not trying to exploit an old friend. And I, you know, I, I, I have haze, so I can make really hazy stuff. And when thing, people talk about Jack Kara, really they're smelling a little bit of haze, but I have the whole pie. So I can make stuff that's way hazier than the Jack Kara hazy hybrids that are floating around right now. So uh, it, it's like different, if that makes sense. So I'm, I'm definitely going to be bringing way more haze hybrids back in the years to come because it's my fancy and my fascination and because I have the genetics. Yeah, exciting to see that happen. So if you could only pick one for the rest of your life, what would you pick, indoor or outdoor? I'm indoor all day. I don't like birds shitting on my flowers. I don't think that's very sanitary. And the problem with growing outdoors is that you're, 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 you're susceptible to mother nature. She, you know, she gives, you can work so hard and so true and so valiantly. And she just comes along and has a really damp, you know, August or a really dry one, or, you know, fucking fires and that you get fallout and, you know, or some kid next door is frigging playing with some seeds and he pops some males. And next thing you knew, you've got, fertilized flowers that you didn't expect to have because pollen travels really easily. So I think there's a lot of drawbacks to outdoor. I think outdoor will mostly be used for extracts um, because it can be cleaned up. I think that small batch outdoor can be freaking awesome because there's nothing like the sun. But my favorite is mixed light indoor greenhouse because my greenhouse also has LED supplementation and I have, you know, VPD control and heat and the ability to cool it off and it's you know i'm mother nature at that point if the environment fucks up it's my fault not hers i'm just you know surfing the wave as she skids it to me on hot days or dry days or rainy days i just readjust the equalizer that's my greenhouse and try to stay in my permitters and keep my plants happy and i like that i prefer to have a roof over my plant's head and i i like avoiding the winds and everything but i still grow indoors for practical reasons because i got to keep mother plants and i got to keep clones and you're not going to do that in the sunshine and i also um i like indoor flowers i think they're great and it gives me an ability to kind of see the expressions of the phenotypes in a controlled environment uh where everything's equal you know where when you're outside you know one can get a little more sun or what could be in a little sweet spot but when it's indoors, it's it's they're all sweet spots or you're not setting up your environment correctly. So for testing reasons, I'll always be an indoor grower, you know, for, you know, greenhouse. I'll, I'll always have a greenhouse too. But I'll always, yeah, but outdoor, I don't, I like putting plants outdoors. I've done it many times, but I don't know. I feel like it's like rolling dice with mother nature. Maybe you'll get a good harvest, but if she's mad, maybe you won't. No, I completely agree with you. I completely agree. So, I'm interested to know, if I'm going to drop you off on a desert island and you can only take three strains with you for the rest of your life, what three are you going to take? Oh, it'd be haze for sure. It would be now Northern Lights. Probably, 
Ooh, I don't know. NL2 or Purist Indica would have to be one of those two. That's really tough. That would be tough. Maybe the Purist Indica, but then I wouldn't have an Afghan to make the NL2. Um, and then third, hmm, ah, that's tough. You know, for the diversity of it, it would be something similar to, to, to Skunk One because I like the tropicalness of it. And when I say Skunk One, I, I like the sweet version of, of Skunk One as well as the acrid version I found in the Mel Frank's Old Seeds. Uh, so I kind of, I like the fruity tropical varieties. Um, and, and if I had Haze, Skunk One, e even the, the, the sweet Skunk One, and uh, either the Purist Indica or the NL2, I'd be pretty happy because at that point I would have the gassy, I would have the fruity, and I have the spicy and I would be thrilled, I guess. And then I could make all sorts of great shit because you know I'd need a few more lifetimes on the island just because of all the hybrids I'd want to make. <laughs> you know? And then time to test them, of course. And, and then time to make hash with them. <laughs> Covering all the bases. I like it. I like it. On to our final question, one I love to ask everyone. If you could get in a time machine and go back in time anywhere you wanted, any time presumably to collect either seeds or a cutting, where would you go and what would you be collecting? That's heavy, man. Um, that's heavy. I came home from Amsterdam with over 50,000 seeds and they were stolen from me when I got raided. And I don't know. That's tough because I had such a diversity in genetics at that point. I wish I could have my old seeds because it sounds really weird to say, but I admit I it hurt to lose them. It took me up to that point, a lifetime of collecting to, and then they took them all. And I just, uh, that hurt. And, uh, I don't know, like that, I could still see them in front of me. I just, I don't know. That's partly why people listening, you know, partly how I got the, the deal from Peter is, uh, he offered me 10 grand and he offered me, uh, that skunk man say I'm calling me right now, actually. Um, they, he, he offered me 10 grand in, in 8% of my book and I turned them down. And then I had mailed back some seeds. And when I mailed them back, uh, I, I, he was there with me when I opened the packages, the boxes, he had boxes too. I sent him goodies as well. I'm sure the statute of limitations is long as a long up, but, uh, but I started pulling seeds out instead of hash and grass, which is what he wanted. I started pulling seeds out, packages of 1,000, all neatly marked with the varieties. And he was shocked, you know. And when he grabbed a bag of seeds, he was like, how much is a seed worth? And I was like, I don't know, five bucks, 10 bucks. And he's like, this little baggie's worth 10 grand? And I was like, yeah. And there was like a pile and a half of, there was a huge amount of in front of me. And he was like, how many seeds are there? I sent an excess of 50,000. And he said, no wonder you said no to my money. And he was like, what are you going to do with those? And I was like, hopefully keep them, you know, but I want to start, you know, I want to start a seed company. And he said, no, you have to keep them. He's like, you have to grow them. Every one of them, they're important. And I was just like, oh my God. And he was just like, would you take a quarter million with that? With that, with, with like, we, I'll give you a credit card too, but like, let's get you started. And I was just like, 
yeah. And he literally turned to my girlfriend and, and, and he was like, do you still have the keys to my car? Cause we had used this car. And I said, and he said, yeah, I said, yeah, she said, yes. And he said, let's bring him to the bank before he changes his mind. And he got up in a robe with fucking shower shoes, little fucking fuzzies. Cause he was gay. He was hilarious. And a bird running around on his shoulders, shitting on his white robe. And he had us drive him down to the Wells Fargo bank in LA. And we walked in this dude's wearing a robe and got bedhead for days. And we go in there and the manager runs up to him. He's like, Mr. McWilliams, how are you doing? Would you like some organic milk? We have it in the fridge for you. And he's like, yeah, sure. And they, he whisks us into the manager's office. And just, it was that easy. Peter's like, I want to put a quarter million dollars uh, in his bank account. He's going to need a company card. What else do you need? And I was like, I can't think of much more now. And he's like, we'll get back to you if we need more stuff. It was like my life changed in a minute. And I, and <clears throat> that's kind of how it happened. I mean, I immediately started looking for a place to live. I found the castle, which was utterly ridiculous, but had a lot of space. I moved into it and I had a fucking, I, I literally had a, 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 a card with no limit. I, Peter was like very encouraging. He was very wealthy at the time. And he was like, he thought he, he was dying. I mean, unfortunately, he died two and a half years after we met. And um, he just, he was living like his life was ending. And uh, and I had no limit. So I bought fucking diamond lights and fucking built the tables, brought electricians in. I fucking, everything was amazing, man. I put my ballast in my elevator shaft because I had this like 70 foot elevator shaft that went from the ground floor all the way up. And I put massive fans in my attic and I pulled the air all the way through fresh air from my garage, which was like a six car garage. I had 38 lights in one room and I used to pull all the air through up into my elevator shaft, up the elevator shaft and through out of the house. The place was incredible. It was located directly across from something called the Stone Canyon Reservoir. And it created this little humid zone in the canyon I lived in. And I didn't even have to use domes when I made clones. It was like perfect VPD all the time. And I, it was crazy. Like you could put any plant you wanted outside and it loved it. I had plants going up my staircases, all over my patios, in the courtyard. I had them everywhere. I took this haze plant that was like, I'd say almost 16 feet tall and dragged it into my elevator with a twisty fluorescent light bulb. And the plant was like half bent over. So when you got in the elevator, this haze plant was like really big leaves, but super thin. And like, it was weird. It was like a big bear hugging you. You know what I mean? Cause it was just stuffed in the corner and the stem was like bent all the way, all the way over at an angle. And then I put a little table in it where you could do suit, like single bong hits as you took elevator rides. It was a kid's fantasy is really what it was. I mean, for a stoner, a psychedelic pot grower, it was fucking great while it lasted, you know, and I don't know. I don't regret it. It was, it was a lot of fun. I, I never planned for it to happen. I, I hope nobody listening thinks that I had some stupid dream of moving to Bel Air and growing fucking thousands of plants in a fucking mansion but it just it's it, it's it's what happened you know <laughs> just sometimes when you're letting life take you takes you some strange places you know that's it i think that's the the theme of this interview it's taking us to some strange places but nevertheless incredibly knowledgeable insightful very grateful to have been able to hear all your insights 
I think that's just about the end of it. Did you have any comments or shout outs you wanted to make? <clears throat> no, we've talked about a lot. You know, it was really nice Jordan, to sit and talk with you, go over this stuff. I mean, I hope it's inspirational to people listening, you know, if anything. I think that's been the point of my life is to inspire others. And I've been very inspired. So it was great to have this inspiring conversation with you. And thank you for taking the time. And I hope people enjoy it. It's the longest conversation I've ever had on a podcast. But I've never gone over this much material. And, you know, for the history books. And there you have it, friends. Part two of two with the legend Todd McCormick of AGC Co. Huge shout out and thank you again for taking the time to stop by, share all your knowledge, thoughts on various topics we discussed, and a little bit of an idea for what might come in the future. As usual, we want to give another quick shout out to our fantastic sponsors, Seeds Here Now, best seeds in the game. You know them, you love them. Go check them out. Coppered by Logical Systems your number one choice for beneficial predators and keeping any pests or pathogens at bay. Check out the Afipar M, the Spidex Vital, both killer products. Likewise, Promix Connect, your number one mycorrhizal product from the good people at Promix. You know them, you love them, they've been around forever. Try their mycorrhizal product, I promise. It's amazing. Highest spore count there is, guaranteed viability. Your plants are gonna just go insane. And last but not least, your buds at Charlie's Cannabis. Check them out. If you're in Oklahoma, there's no other choice. Simply the highest quality available. Exciting genetics, new phenos and new strains on the horizons always. Check them out. Our good buddies, veteran-owned, in-house produced. Charlie's your bud. Finally, a huge shout-out to the Patreon gang. You are the lifeblood of the show. You guys help to ensure the episodes continue to be made. If you want early access to content, you want to hear unheard interviews, get access to exclusive giveaways, prizes, Discord, so much more, go check out the Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. That's it, friends. Thanks for joining me again for this one, guys. Making it to the end. I'll see you for the next one. Zoom. So, yeah.